Welcome to Podland, the last word in podcasting news. It's the 14th of October 2021. I'm James Cridland, the editor of podnews.net here in Australia. And I'm Sam Sethi, the MD of River Radio, a podcast-first radio station here in the UK. I'm Genevieve Hassan, the host of Celebrity Catch-Up, Life After That Thing I Did, and I'll be on the show later talking about my exclusive deal with Virgin Atlantic. I'm Brian of London, and I'm going to talk about Podping, the decentralised web value for value and dairy cows. They will. Podland is sponsored by Buzzsprout, used by over 100,000 podcasters like us to host, promote and track your podcast and by Riverside.fm, a tool for recording podcasts and video interviews in studio quality from anywhere. Now, Podland is a weekly podcast where James and I delve deeper into the week's podcasting news. And this week's big news. Let's crack on with that. James... Come uh, star, James. Ah, now, come star. Is that some form of language that you're speaking there? Well... You know that I'm a lazy Briton and don't speak any other languages other than English, don't you? I heard you in Spanish <laughs> fluently this week. So come on, tell me, how are you speaking fluent Spanish, given that you're a Brit? So this is Sounds Profitable en Español which started yesterday. It's a new newsletter in Spanish, as you may have guessed. And Brian Barletta is producing it. Now, what's craftily clever about this is that it is all automatic translation. Uh, It's being translated and produced using technology from Veritone Marvel AI. And obviously, you know, we're quite used to things like Google Translate and stuff like that. But what this also does is it does that for voices as well. So Sounds Profitable en Español is also available as a podcast. And Brian Barletta uh, sounds as if he speaks Spanish fluently, but actually he doesn't speak Spanish at all. Would you like to hear a bit of artificial Brian Barletta? Uh, yes, go on then. Este artículo fue traducido a través de la tecnología de traducción del inglés al español de Veritone. Obtenga más información visitando veritone.com. That is quite astonishing because when you talk to Brian, as you'll hear next week, because uh, he will be you as as you go off on yet another holiday, Mr. Sethi. Well, strangely, I should take Veritone because I'm going to Spain into Barcelona. Well, there we are. Keep your valuables safe. So that is what Brian sounds like in the automated voice. And it is astonishingly good. I mean, that, uh, you, you know, you wouldn't know listening to that, that it wasn't just just Brian um, blathering on in uh, Spanish. It's quite, it's quite amazing. And as you, as you say, using the same synthetic voice technology, this is me speaking a bit of Spanish as well. Pasa cualquier tiempo con cualquier directorio de podcasts y verás una gran cantidad de programas en inglés. That is me. And I'm speaking Spanish. And I have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> well, how does your wife think it sounds? Because that's the acid test when your wife listens to you. Because what we listen to in our own voices sometimes isn't what actually we sound like. Yes. Well, um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one better. My mother listened to it and said, I don't really recognise you. But my other half was amazed at it, as I was. Uh, it really is quite a thing. And I think it, it opens up uh, the possibilities of making something which 
sounds like the person, but allows you to take a podcast and make it available in other languages to other cultures that you wouldn't necessarily do. I mean, obviously, it's still recorded. It still sounds a little bit robotic. Um, it still sounds a bit weird. But on the other hand, so much better than where we've been in the past. Quite an amazing thing. This reminds me a little bit of Descript's overdub feature. When I first saw this about a year or so ago, they bought a Canadian company. Mm-hmm. And the original version of Overdub allowed me to take my voice, read half an hour of uh, text, and then they synthesize it so that I could edit my podcast. And if I got something wrong, add my own voice back. Mm. Mm. They've then taken it one stage further. You now don't have to actually read anything. You can just submit any audio that you like to them, and they'll synthesize your voice but they've gone even one stage further, which is they've got American actors. So now you can actually type out text within Descript and then apply a an American actor or actress's voice to it. They haven't, of course, gone that extra stage, which is what Veritone Marvel AI have done, which is to provide foreign language yes. uh, voiceovers. But that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, th- I, I think it's pretty clever. And there are certain mouth sounds that I'm making there that I don't make because, uh, you know, Spanish has different sounds in it than English does. So that's a really clever thing. I have to say what um, they've also done, because they've um, obviously taken my voice with my permission and um, put it into their system, they also allow me to speak English as well. But I think one of the weird things with that is that I have an American accent on their version. Would you like to hear me with an American accent? Not particularly, but go on, you're going to do it to me anyway. Spend any time with any podcast directory and you'll see a wild amount of English language shows. But English is the primary language for less than 5% of the global population. Thanks to some clever new tech, podcasts could be made available in multiple languages without sounding like an 80s robot. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, a, that's a weird old thing, isn't it? That's me with an American accent. Do they have you with an Australian accent, James, yet? <laughs> no, we don't do that. Um, but yeah, that's really strange. It's sort of half me and half Brian. Uh, so very clever technology anyway. So uh, looking forward to seeing how that works. And if you would like to sign up, uh, I have learned all sorts of things about international domain names, I'll tell you. Uh, but you can go to espanol.soundsprofitable.com if you habla espanol. Uh, and um, yeah, and do uh, sign up and you can get that uh, newsletter every single week in uh, Spanish. I, you know what's coming through my head is uh, Faulty Towers and Manuel right now with the classic line, Mr. Faulty. <laughs> Mr. Faulty. I no want to work yet anymore. I don't want to work here anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Faulty Towers. Yes. Yes. Anyway. So few episodes of that as well, which is... uh, 13, I believe. Quit while you're ahead. Yes. Now, moving swiftly on. uh, Google Podcasts is blocking access to some podcasts to under-18s and users who aren't signed in. What have you discovered, James? So some people have noticed that when they click on their shows... Um, from a web browser and it opens up Google Podcasts, it gives you this message saying content not available. And then underneath it says we've restricted some content for people who aren't over 18, even though the person using that particular phone was over 18, which is just really weird. And there was a 
sports and fitness podcast publisher who contacted me and they said, you know, we've got, you know, our episodes have interviews with a women's football manager or a TV sports commentator or a rugby coach. Um, you know, there's nothing in there that a, a child shouldn't be listening to. So why on earth has it been flagged as unsuitable for kids? And our client is now really concerned about what's in the podcast because Google has basically said it's not suitable for children. And I couldn't work out why it was any reason why it was restricted. Um, Google Podcasts, I, I contacted them. They gave me a tiny little statement, which I went back and I said, um, can, can we do a bit better? <laughs> Let me ask you some questions. And they've eventually come back and said, it's something to do with children's privacy regulations. I don't really understand where the privacy comes in. It's all your lot's fault because it's privacy regulations in the UK. Google Podcast says that um, certain content may now be restricted for users who our systems indicate may be under the age of 18 or who aren't signed into their Google account and are in a region impacted by the aforementioned compliance measures. But as to why they've, they're basically, you know, randomly deciding that a particular show is... Um, not available for kids or not. It's just very strange. And the podcaster, I think the most important thing here is it's got nothing to do with the explicit tag or anything else. The podcaster themselves do not know that their show and their reputation are being besmirched by Google in this way. And I don't think that's very good, to be honest. Do you have to verify your account for your age at any point? actually properly send any documentation? I mean, no. Uh, to Google, no, you don't. Um, but I think Google very quickly works out whether or not you are over or under age. You know, I think I think that that's sort of relatively easy because, you know, I, I mean, my daughter has a, has a Google account so that she can use YouTube for kids. And so that's a pretty obvious flag that you know, it's not really available to them. But I mean, what, what I don't really understand with this, and I'm, I'm not going to push back to Google a third time, is what on earth has children's privacy regulations got to do with whether or not you can listen to a podcast? And given that every other podcast app will allow you to listen to anything you want, with the possible exception of, you know, explicit content in places like India, where you have to click a, a check button first. It does seem very strange that Google has essentially just sort of made up and decided that it knows better than the podcast publisher ourselves as to whether or not we, you know, Hef and Jeff in our podcast or talk about things that we don't want kids to have listened to. It seems a very strange thing. Let's see if Google ever come back to you, James, but I doubt it. No, I think it's a bit its a bit more censorship, and that's probably not what we want, really. Well, talking of censorship, I caught up with a certain young person in Israel called Dr. Brian of London. That's his moniker, so we can't give out his real name. Uh, he was banned from Facebook, uh, and his whole page was taken down. And he decided that he wanted to create a distributed decentralized system so he started working on a blockchain technology called hive and he caught up with adam and dave last week on their podcast and i enjoyed the podcast being a techie but boy was it heavy tech and you had to listen probably three or four times to understand what the hell all the speak was about so i thought i'd reach out to brian and see if he'd actually come on and talk in english as opposed to uh tech speak yes uh, and explain what podping was why it was useful uh, and also talk about payments and the hive. But I also wanted to be fair to Chris Messina last week because Adam was a little bit harsh on him. Um, Chris came on kindly and he spoke about 
technology which was probably 10 years ago, maybe even longer. And in the window that he was around doing the open web technology at the time and PubSub, Hubbub and WebSub and all these other techs that were around, they were breaking ground at the time trying to help us move to what we're now seeing as a new decentralised web. And Adam was a little bit... um, yeah, dismissive of all the work that Chris and others did. But Brian and I spoke about it, and then we also spoke about what he's done since to try and make Podping and other technologies on the Web3 that will benefit all of us as podcasters. I am sitting in North Tel Aviv, the the promised land. Now, Brian, one of the projects you're working on is something called Podping. I really want to just try and understand for people what is Podping. It's come out recently it feels recent so what is podping and what problem is it fixing as we know in in podcasting world i think we're going to try and keep this like at a high level without the the deep tech but the most basic part of a podcast is an rss feed and we're going to argue over whether you need an rss feed to call (laughs) yourself a podcast but i think we'll start that you do and the way that rss feeds are decentralized is that Anyone can host an RSS feed. Now, there are major podcast hosts like Anchor and Buzzsprout and all of our friends who host a lot of podcast shows. So what that means is they've got tons and tons of RSS feeds. The problem with RSS feeds is there's no way to know that they've been changed without going and asking them. So a computer somewhere in the world has to send out a request and say, have you changed? And the answer generally is no, because if a show changes once a week and you want to be updated within an hour, you're going to have to check every single hour. You're going to have to send out a request. Have you updated? No. Have you updated? No. And it's just a lot of bandwidth. It's like children in the back of the car. Are we there yet? It's exactly like children in the back. And that's the model that Dave Weiner and and Adam Curry gave the world. And And it was great when there were a few tens of thousands of podcast players actual people listening to podcasts and a few tens of thousands of podcasts. And also, remember, this was the original way in which the Apple podcast app worked, was it, the the phone or the the iPod in your hand or or the computer, actually the software on your computer would make that request. But this has all become semi-centralized. So you've got big computers doing indexing things, asking this question, have you changed? Have you changed? And When Podcasting 2.0 started up with Adam Curry and Dave Jones, one of the things they wanted to help was this problem of polling. Because when you set up a a new index, like Podcast Index, their biggest single block of computers was one that just sat there checking first hundreds of thousands and then millions and now four million podcast feeds that you have to check. And if you want an update every hour, if you want to be less than an hour since a podcast was released, you have to check every hour. Now you can do all sorts of fancy algorithms to say, this is the no agenda show. So it comes out on Thursdays and Sundays at this time, and maybe we'll bump up the frequency. But it's all guessing. Then came along this thing, web sub hub, pub, pub, sub. I had no involvement in that. I didn't even know it really existed, but I started to learn about it. And the bit about it that I didn't like is that it seemed that it had Google in the middle of it, often. (laughs) Google's computers, or it always needed somebody to be big in the middle. So we wanted to skip that. And Podping, something I proposed because I've been involved in something called the Hive blockchain. 
the, the features of the Hive blockchain were known to me. And when I was hearing Dave describe the features of a system that would watch all these different podcasts and instantly give a notification worldwide, I thought, you know what, that's kind of similar. There's a big game on Hive. It's similar to the way that game operates. And so I wrote a little proof of concept following one of the dev meetings, and I had it working in four hours. And it was a way that you could send a signal to the Hive blockchain, which is public. The Hive blockchain takes it in, writes it on the blockchain. But then it's very easy for as many computers as you like. And this is where it can be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands to watch the chain. And every time they see a notification goes by that's the right format that just says, oh, this RSS feed updated, this RSS feed. And it's just a continual stream of RSS URLs that streams past. And you know that each one of those means, oh, go check that feed, pull down the new episode. Now, how do you get the pod pings in? That's the hope. On an individual basis, any individual can write to pod ping. But it only becomes really useful at scale when Buzzsprout or Transistor or RSS.com, who've all adopted this so far, where they add to their workflow. So one of their customers goes on, uploads a new episode, writes the description, hits that publish button. There's one tiny more action, which is to send a little signal. At the moment, Dave runs a computer that, that takes that signal in and then writes the Hive blockchain. But in the future, this is properly decentralized. And, and I already do the, operate one like this myself. Anybody can write these pod pings. It's permissionless. I don't give permission. Now, at the moment, we check who's writing them, and, and we only read the ones from the ones we know. But the, the big deal is that there's no possibility of anyone stopping someone from pod pinging. Once you get a Hive account through which to run your pod, that's it. That's all you need. And then it becomes a virtuous system in that, the more hosts join it, the more reason it will be for indexes, like Podcast Index who already are watching it. But one day, one day, one happy day, Apple should be watching PodPing because they'll be able to turn off a whole bank of carbon-producing, eco-unfriendly computers, which just sit there sucking everybody's bandwidth. That, that's great because I think people want to understand this without going into the technology, but understand the business value for doing it. And I think that's more important as well to understand. And if anyone wants to, they can go to podping.com slash watch, is it? It's podping.watch. I think that shows everything spooling okay. by. And if one goes to the podcasting 2.0 GitHub and looks for podping, you'll find repositories because this is all 100% open. We've never written a line of code that isn't open source for this. Anybody can start using it. And what we're looking for is the big hosts and the big indexes. The next thing that's going to come, and I think this is where it's going to be hugely revolutionary for open standards and for something that the open web has never done is live notifications. I've gone live. Podpin can handle that with ease. It's an extension we're going to write. So instead of just saying, I've got a new episode, you'll be able to send the signal out that says, I'm going live. And this is the, the link to the, the audio live stream or the video live stream it makes no difference. And clients will be able to watch that. And that might be a bit subversive. Today, live notifications have almost exclusively been the purview of vertical 
monopolies. You know, Facebook, if you go live on Facebook, Facebook tells all the people on Facebook, doesn't help you outside. YouTube the same, Twitter the same. We're going to produce the way that the open web can do live notifications, cross-app, open, instant. And I don't think that's been done before. And I think that might surprise some of these big vertical tech goliaths. Yeah, no, I think because Dave in phase four of the podcast index has got a live tag as well, hasn't he? Yeah, that's part of this. It's the idea that you put, if you're running a live stream associated with, with your show, you put that in your RSS feed, but then you also join up to do pod pings when you go live. And that's a sort of a marriage of, of two ideas that need to be, because very few people are going to be broadcasting 24 hours a day. Going live is a specific event. You're going to need to tell people about that event. Yeah, sure, you can tweet about it or you can post on Facebook. But again, I come from a bit of an anti-censorship background. If we want to get into how the web has grown from the beginning, and this relates back to what you were saying with Chris uh, Messina, he talked about actually the same phases of the web that I recognize. But I remember the old web, the web that gave rise to podcasts. And I think podcasts are one of the few bits of the internet that's sort of almost dinosaurish. It's It survived the era of the tech goliaths. They didn't manage to, to destroy it yet. And I hope they won't. And I call that web 1.0. I'm going to give you a cow's analogy. Okay. So follow me on this. So the beginning of the web, everything was distributed. We had a blog here and a blog there. And the newspapers started to write their own websites. I think the Telegraph was one of the first mm -hmm. in the UK, the Electronic Telegraph. And I, I happened to be in Berkeley in California, and I was reading English news on the Electronic Telegraph, dialed into my girlfriend's uh, account at the university. I mean, it was, that was the beginning. And I'd liken that to saying that there were these cows were producing milk. The milk is the content, but they were just scattered. They were wild cows grazing freely, producing some milk. And it was uneconomic to go and collect all that. But we moved slowly through the end of the 90s into a phase where these cows started to be gathered together. And they were gathered together in MySpace and became Facebook and Google. All of this content got gathered together to where it could be milked by big, huge, giant, evil dairy farms. And these cows were just in rows being milked furiously. And the money was just flowing out of the country. And the currency of the internet was this content being produced, and that was the milk. And where was the milk sold? It was sold to the advertisers, because they're the real customers of the internet today. And that's where we are today, is that most people, you know, they're, they're scrolling through their Instagram feed, maybe they're posting a picture every now and then. They are giving milk to Facebook and Google. That's where all of their money comes from. If you look in their annual reports, both Facebook and Google say, substantially all of our revenue comes from advertising. They make no money on any of the other things they do. Google in particular, we know Google for self-driving cars and all the other things they do. They make no money on any of it except advertising. What we're entering now, though, what I would call Web 3.0, and it's starting to be the point where the cows, us, <laughs> we break free and we become farmers of our own content. We get to monetize it. So that's value for value with the streaming sats. The details, the technical details of how we finally managed to have micropayments are less important than the fact that I can have a one-to-one -one relationship and you guys can get boostergrams one-to-one -one 
direct from your audience without this dairy farmer in the middle called Google or PayPal or, or Facebook taking his huge, when you think of it, cut. And Podping is, is even, Podping is also part of that because again, the reason Podping works is because of Hive. I won't go into sort of the technical details of how that blockchain sustains itself, but it's many hundreds of computers run by many hundreds of individuals. But underlying it, because it's based on a cryptocurrency idea, just like blockchain, there is an economic incentive to keep running the servers which make it work. The details of that are crypto techie stuff and proof, I can say lots of words like proof of stake and proof of work, and it doesn't matter. There is a thing called Hive, you can join it, it has accounts, but the accounts are your own. You know, one of the things that makes this whole business a little bit a step beyond what we had when we were the dairy cows. When you're a dairy cow, you just get pushed into a stall and everything's given to you. You're fed in one end and your milk drops out the back. When you want to be self-sovereign, when you want to be your own farmer, the difference is that you have to run a whole bunch of stuff. Now, we can make this somewhat easy, but at the bottom of the line, just something as simple as what's my password? I've forgotten my password. In the world of Web 3.0, I have an account on Hive. There is absolutely no way anyone on earth can recover my keys or my password if I forget it. It's not going to happen. I understand the mathematics of this. They're not important, but it is important to know you lose your keys, you're gone. There is nobody, there's no safety net. And that's, that is an issue. It's an issue, but it, 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 with that responsibility comes a huge step forward, I think, in, in how we operate on the web. Yeah. So I love the fact that we are moving back from a decentralized platform, right? We're moving away from back to its roots, really. We all saw Skype. We all saw Napster, if you remember that, the music sharing, peer-to-peer -peer file sharing system. So they've evolved, they've, they've matured, they've changed, but Web3 is going back using blockchain as its basis to being a peer-to-peer network in effect multiple networks where no centralization occurs and that's the critical part yeah and so podping on top of that is a decentralized messaging system is what you called it that allows us to transfer not just your podcast has been updated but this is now live what other things do you think podping could de deliver then you, you, you know, know the hive blockchain itself is actually a, a full-blown social network it's actually the social net my, it's my social network of choice actually which i joined it two and a half years ago after being thrown off facebook for 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 reasons and i'm very pleased i did because i get rewarded i post something on hive i get money it's there's no point dancing around it but the, it's I'm there because of this intellectual realization. In order to use services on the internet, somebody has to run a server. Somebody has to pay, and that costs money always. And you buy the server and you run it, in, or, or, or you rent it. Doesn't matter. I'm always looking now for services which are self-sustaining, i.e., they generate revenue in a decentralized way such that the people running those services are happy to keep running them. Because if there's a big venture capital firm that's gone and put $10 million into a project, when that $10 million runs out, where, does the pro where is the project sustained from? 
And what the world of crypto has managed to do, almost out of thin air, but not quite because of the sort of power of the power of teamwork and the power of generating a new sort of way of dealing with money, they've come up with projects that have a chance of self-sustaining and of raising money internally. But at the end of the day, if I want a podcast that I like to continue, either I have to suffer the adverts that come, that, that pay the bills, or I give direct to that podcast. And it's a choice. It's, it's, it's where it is on that continuum. Many, I'm not on the full advertising is always evil. It isn't. It's fantastic. I've been listening to Security Now forever, for example, since the beginning of podcasting. That's a show with adverts that I genuinely am often interested in. Now, do I like hearing the same advert for the 40th time when someone's done an ad block buy for the year? No, <laughs> that's boring, but whatever. Okay, we've got to come up with, and crypto has done this. And what else can Hive do? I think Hive actually could be a commenting system and a universal login system, but I don't want to push Hive into podcasting anymore. I've managed to get Podping working, and that was a big achievement. I've also done, you know, you're using value for value and James is running his own node. I've built a system where you don't have to run your own node. You can, I'll receive value for value payments for a given podcast, and then I'll turn it into the Hive cryptocurrency. And Hive has certain advantages that you don't have to be running your own computer to receive it. So all of this is out there. It's possible. And what I love about the open nature that we've gone back to is Adam and Dave, they put up the spec for value. Lightning is one way of doing it. I'm adding another layer on top of that that makes things easier in some ways. And, and I, I'm hoping that other sort of cryptocurrency projects perhaps will come and look and see what we're doing and work out how to integrate with us. We're creating the virtue of choices. Now that sometimes scares people. Again, we're back between this sort of, I, I remember the early days of blogging and so many of the people I followed in those days they fell off one by one. They wound up with Facebook pages. And at the beginning, if you were really, if you were in early and you, you grew your massive Facebook page, you were making tons of money and it was sending you tons of traffic and it was you getting click through and Google AdWords paid lots of money at that time. And you could be getting twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a month from AdWords driven by traffic that you got from Facebook. Facebook has turned off traffic to external sites. Google AdWords pays nothing and you're left with you're just your Facebook page. And I've seen, I had a 1 million person pay, Facebook page that I'd helped build, turned off overnight, boom, gone, business over. I don't like to invest now my time, my, my effort, my milk. I don't want to put it into the hands of Facebook and Google anymore. Okay. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because I'm, you will know I'm with you on this. And I've, I come from a heritage of Netscape, so the open side of the world. But I'm also a pragmatist. And if somebody says to me, tomorrow, Apple with Apple Pay turns on a micropayment system of some sort, I've got my iPhone, I've got my podcast, which most of my traffic still comes through Apple right now. And I can make some micropayment, not the subscription that they've got, but a, a micropayment, a value for value type cryptocurrency that Apple put together, maybe not even a crypto, just a straight payment, fiat payment. And I go, brilliant. 
I didn't need to do much. I needed to click one button and Apple does that very well of simplifying technology, like private relays as an example right now. So suddenly 90% of the human planet who just doesn't care about blockchains and hives and all this stuff and having to create their own wallet. And as you said, remember the keys. And, oh my God, have I forgot my keys and blah, blah, blah. Because I can get, do it with my thumbprint or my, my face ID. Suddenly they can just do that. So what is to stop Apple just going, yeah, great. Well done, Brian. Well done, Dave and Adam. You've got, you've made everyone interested in micropayments, which is normally what they wait for a technology to get critical mass. Then they come in left field and tell everyone they've invented it. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, the answer is we just have to be better than them. We, my favorite quote, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And just to, you know, on the invincibility of these big tech uh, Goliaths, Apple does, you're right, Apple has all of the capabilities right now. But if you look into the details of how Apple Pay works, it's just a front-end skin on the existing credit card system, which cannot handle micropayments. You can't do one-cent payments through Visa. They'll kill you. They'll murder you. They just work with their system. As bad as the uh, throughput is on Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these blockchains, except Hive, as bad as that is, Visa can't cope with one-cent payments either. So... You know, there. I, I think one has to be realistic. Oh, just left field thing. I'm busy doing podping, which is, has become almost more than a hobby. Podping and the value for value and all of my the work I'm doing with podcasting 2.0. Because basically I was a gone developer. I'm not a developer. I'm a, a guy who came to Israel running a business with my brother-in-law. I've stepped back from that to, to learn to code again, because I learned to code as a as an 11-year-old in 1981 with a ZX81. And I've picked <laughs> it up again. And it's, it's I love it. But the other thing I'm involved with is actually suing Facebook and Google for multi-billion dollar lawsuit in Australia, because they banned cryptocurrency advertising in 2018. They just banned it. They just said, they turned around and said to an entire industry, Facebook did this first. Facebook said, your industry is frequently associated with false and misleading practices. And we're just going to ban the whole thing. Just ban you from access to the world's most significant online advertising platform. And for cryptocurrency projects, online advertising is the only advertising that matters. They banned them worldwide. We think, my friend and I think that's illegal. We're going through the courts in Australia. We just finished seven hours of hearings with a judge. I actually concluded yesterday, waiting for a, a ruling on that. And, but the point is, you build your podcast and you build your monetization and your career and your future based on Apple. What, how do you know that one day they're either not going to say, we want that business and just pull the plug on, or, or you'll say something wrong and you'll get cancelled and they'll just turn you off. And that won't happen to most people, but there are enough of us who have seen that happen to be very scared of putting our financial future in the hands of a few tech goliaths. No, and I agree. Any developer who was on Twitter in the early days who built a, a, a Twitter app then had the, all the games on Facebook, or all yeah, those I mean, farming games, all of that stuff. In fact, the, the game on Hive that gave me uh, the idea for Podping is a game called Splinterlands. It's a card, it's one of these card battling games like Magic the Gathering. 
But each card is a non-fungible token, an NFT, but they, they, they have real value. There's a secondary market where, and, and the guys who created Splinterlands, they don't control the market for the cards. They put the cards out there and they get traded. And that, that game has gone through explosive growth over the last um, three months, a million new players and all of this stuff. But the point is, if you play that game, you are earning real currency that you can convert to actual real money it's it can't be taken away from you your keys to that game are not dependent on facebook they're not dependent on google they're not even dependent on the company called splinterlands which runs the game someone could take splinterlands the secondary markets for example for the cards are run by third parties because all the data is public and published on a blockchain that's what a real public permissionless blockchain really means everyone has got the back-end database so whereas facebook's database is massive and totally proprietary you try you know all of facebook's pub problems when they gave too much access to their data exactly <coughs> hive at least i know that everything on hive barring a few specifically encrypted direct messages Everything is public. Every like I do. Now, that's not for everybody. That's not to everybody's tastes. But to me, it's preferable than having this sort of black box, algo-driven algo thing that I don't have any ownership or control of. Okay, looking forward into the future, put your you know, Mystic Meg hat on, Brian, and, and tell Only us... Only Brit would know what Mystic Meg means. <laughs> yeah, okay, get your crystal ball out. Brian of London, what's missing currently now to make this jump the shark to go mainstream. I know Twitter for US only for now has added the ability for micropayments and that's a massive step forward to create wallets, to create value for value and share Satoshi's, these micropayments with other people. And I suppose that's a little bit towards them doing Twitter spaces. Maybe instead of a heart, you'll be able to give a micropayment in the future, which is great. And I think that's a, a better value proposition. But that's still very geeky end of the scale. What do you believe needs to be done now or in the next X months, years that would make this just as people now, when I remember being in Netscape and explaining what a URL was and people, sorry, what was that again? WWW. And now no one thinks about it twice, right? What will it take for micropayments, value for value, cryptocurrencies to become mainstream? It will take a better UI on, I think we've got the underlying basics. We've actually got the back end these days. Hive is pretty good, but it needs some slickness in the sign-up. It needs better mobile options. Again, all of this is stuff I'm working on and I'm working on with people. On the back end, my friends at a, at a video hosting site called 3Speak, which I, by the way, have turned into the world's only completely value-enabled video podcast host. And we're going to hopefully have some setup screens that let you let your video channel really be a video podcast. That will be ready this week. They're going to make the back end a bit more decentralized so that file storage can be uh, decentralized. But from the user's point of view, we have to do almost a, a we have to have a massive effort on making this stuff one click. And we've come a long way with the value for value. Podfriend and Castomatic, these other, some of the newer apps, are big, and Fountain's very good. They're starting to have fewer and fewer clicks to get it going with a wallet, 
with a few sats in it. If you're on Hive, for example, I've written a really simple, just single page where you post a lightning invoice and it gets paid. It's not there yet. I agree. It's geeky. We've got to solve this safety net problem of getting people to really understand how important keys are and self-ownership. I don't know whether there's another technology that needs to be invented, tighter integration into phones. I know you, you say you used to explain what a URL is and nobody would understand you. The reality is it's got worse in that nobody actually types a URL anymore. They go to Google and they think Google is the address bar on their browser. To tell people to move half a centimeter up the screen and type it in that box above, type youtube.com. Don't search for YouTube on Google. I'm not, I'm realistic. And I'm also realistic that we won't get everybody. And we, do we, do we need a hundred percent of the world's people to be doing value enabled podcasts? I don't think so. I think if we have 10%, if we have 5%, I think it changes the mentality of the big companies. It forces them to play our game rather than us to play them. And you said, you gave the example of Apple can just walk in. Of course they will, but they'll take 30%. They will take 30%. And at the moment you're paying 1% to, to podcast index and you're playing that gladly and you're playing maybe 1% to the app developer and you are paying that very gladly. And even if we were taking 10%, for the ecosystem. If I know that I'm paying Podcast Index or I'm paying Martin in Denmark for Podfriend, I am far happier than contributing to, to that number. We, we put before the judge in Australia, we put the, the annual reports of Facebook and Google. And I don't think the judge has ever sat and looked at how big a number the annual revenues of Google actually are. People don't, hundreds of billions of dollars don't, they don't register until you're forced. These companies have sucked everything. And, and we haven't even mentioned Amazon. And I want to get away from that. And I agree. The future, it involves us making this stuff obviously easier. And we're going to be fought because they, they will stop us. They will put barriers in the way. They will ban our apps. But one of the reasons, for example, one of the reasons I wanted to turn 3Speak into a video podcast was you can then subscribe to their RSS feed in the Apple Podcasts app and see your video hosted by 3Speak in an Apple app on an Apple device. How are they going to block that? Ryan of London, thank you so much. Look, the Hive is amazing. I recommend going to the website, learning more about it, getting involved. Thank you so much for popping. It is the thing that we needed to make podcasting much better as well. And I look forward to having you back on Podland in the future when we can talk about all the things that you just said, the new features, the live and everything else, because I've got a, a strong interest. I'll only put it that way. I have a very strong interest in what you're doing there. Brian, thank you so much. Take care. Thanks very much. Brian of London. Uh, excellent to hear him. And uh, it was a great interview on the Podcasting 2.0 um, podcast um, uh, last time as well. Um, where he's, a, he's a very funny man. He's, um, he's definitely got the English uh, sounding charm um, and uh, definitely does that very, very well. So he's, um, he's a good egg. So uh, thank you so much for, uh, for uh, interviewing him. Um, I think we're going to go a little bit more techie right at the end, aren't we, with him? Yeah, uh, we, we sort of 
rambled for a longer time and I just said to Brian look can you demystify some of this text so I said look let's go back and look at what blockchain sats are let's look at what lightning networks are let's look at ethereum and he tells me why he thinks ethereum isn't a long-term platform that you should be focused on and he talks about hive so if you want to know what all this tech stuff actually means and have someone who knows about it deeply explain it then stick around right at the end after James says goodbye. um, And there's a whole little section there for you. And of course, we support chapters uh, in your podcast app if your podcast app supports those. And if it doesn't, then get a better one, newpodcastapps.com. Right then, um, talking about podcast apps, Spotify. (laughs) Yeah, so Spotify, we've got an exclusive here on Pod News. Uh, Spotify is closing in on Apple Podcasts and it seems indie podcast apps are becoming less popular. Go on then, James, what did you find out? Yeah, so this is great data from PodTrack. They gave us similar data this time last year. Well, actually, August of last year, but we didn't run the data for August of this year because of the Apple Podcasts bug. And what they show is that for users, Spotify and Apple Podcasts are pretty well neck and neck now. So Spotify is um, certainly increased in terms of users. For downloads, though, it's a very, very different story. Apple Podcasts has seven times more downloads than Spotify. So that probably explains a lot of the conversations that you hear around Apple Podcasts being bigger or the same as Spotify, and it's all very confusing and blah, blah, blah. You know, the data that we've got from PodTrack, and this is based on uh, measuring over a billion US downloads in one month. So it's um, very robust data. Um, That's really showing that Apple Podcasts is there doing uh, very well still in terms of total downloads. And the people who are using Spotify are using it, but they're not in any way, shape or form as committed a listener as uh, a typical Apple listener is. So there's a lot of data in this uh, in this piece, which we'll link to from our show notes as ever. Um, but, um, you know, I, I found that really interesting. The other thing that I found really interesting from the data was seeing a lot of the smaller independent podcast apps like Podcast Addict and Stitcher and CastBox and Pocket Casts, they have all seen a big decline in the amount of market share that they have, both in terms of downloads and in terms of audience. And I found that really interesting. I'm not quite sure why that might be the case. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, you know, um, all of a sudden these apps are losing market share. Maybe the apps are just stagnant. Maybe they're not accepting new people, whereas, you know, Apple and Spotify are certainly getting a ton of new people in. I don't know. But I found that bit really interesting as well. You say that, but then you also reported that the last podcast on the left has announced it's no longer to be a Spotify exclusive. And in fact, they've signed to SiriusXM Stitcher. So it seems that the the doors are going the other way. It does. So last podcast on the left, they've um, announced that they are leaving Spotify as an exclusive. They were a exclusive from February 2020. And from February the 1st, 2022, then they'll be available everywhere again, working with uh, Stitcher, which shows, uh, obviously, that was a, that was a two-year contract, which is quite useful to know because uh, who else signed up in, uh, in early 2020? Will they be making the jump back again to being a non-exclusive, available-everywhere show? 
Um, really interesting seeing last podcast on the left doing that. Uh, you can only guess at why they would end up doing that. But, um, you know, one of the reasons may be that they were just not reaching the large audience that they used to in the past, um, hemming themselves into just a Spotify ecosystem. And I think if you're trying to change the world, as last podcast on the left quite often tries to do, then you don't change the world by hiding your podcast away from 80% of the audience. Yeah, the interesting thing is we've asked Brad Smith to come on. Uh, he's now got a bigger, wider role. He was the CEO of Simplecast. He's now got a bigger role. He has said yes three times, mm. actually, which is very nice of him. But then he's never actually come on. So, <laughs> Brad, this is an open conversation. Um, if you if you pick up your email and you uh, can come on, we'd love you to tell us a little bit more about what's going on over at SiriusXM. I'm sure he's a busy man. I'm sure he is. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> but Stitcher have actually signed, um, you know, a number of a number of uh, podcasts recently. They've uh, signed another one as well, the Bellas podcast, which was uh, new a couple of years ago. And again, they have shifted over to uh, Stitcher. WWE Hall of Fame inductees Bree and Nikki Bella. Any idea, Sam? No, nope. me neither. Um, but anyway, they've uh, signed up, so that's um, uh, so that's good. So clearly, there's some interesting stuff going on at Stitcher. Um, so maybe there's more money in the game now in terms of that. Brené Brown, we hear, is um, selling far fewer books since she moved over to being a Spotify exclusive and so on and so forth. There's a very clear lack of influence if you exclusivize yourself. So, um, uh, but obviously you, you, you earn an awful lot of money from Mr. and Mrs. Spotify. So that's <laughs> never a bad thing, I suppose. Now, Spotify has also claimed this week that it has more than a thousand original Spotify podcasts. So are they going away from the exclusive now back to creating their own in-house content? Well, this is one thing that I always find very confusing around uh, Spotify. They call themselves Spotify Original Podcasts. That is a podcast that is made by Spotify. That is not necessarily an exclusive podcast, but it's a podcast that's made by Spotify. So that includes you know, Gimlet and Parcast and The Ringer and all of those sorts of uh, things. It was an interesting number that they um, that they sort of sneaked out on International Podcast Day, actually. So that's nice. And they um, also posted a quite nice blog post, which was focusing on all of the different podcast producers that they have across the world. Uh, so you can learn a little bit more about how, Sp how Spotify operates in there. Now, talking of sneaking out podcasts, Spotify has launched two new shows. Uh, so the first one is called Spotify Mic Check, which launches on October the 19th. Intimate conversations with musicians and podcasters from around the world. And that's quite nice. That would be a nice little podcast to listen to. And they also snuck out another one called Spotify Discover This. But actually they've already got 11 episodes of that out so it doesn't seem like it's really a new podcast but they were the big announcements yesterday James. Yes they've um, you know launching a, a whole set of these new shows and also launching a video podcast. Ooh, it's the future. <laughs> um, it's their first UK video podcast 
which can be watched on the app itself. Uh, so says the coverage, uh, which is very exciting. Um, it's a popular podcast series by I'm Alex. Um, Alex is a guy called Alex Elmsley, who is a YouTuber. Um, and uh, of course, you know, you can watch Joe Rogan in video on the app anyway, but this is the first UK video podcast with this influencer. Uh, so interesting to see, you know, again, Spotify signing up some more content, but some video content on this side. Yeah, not something I'll be rushing to, I have to say, but there you go. It's nice to see them getting <laughs> getting video yeah. in there. But I, I suppose as a trend, is it something that you think this is going to happen more and more? Are we going to, well, I suppose you've got the podcast enclosure tag. So if Spotify says, look, hey, you can consume this as a audio or a video, are, are we bothered? I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think video podcasts have always been a thing. I think one of the problems with video podcasts in the past has been that you need to subscribe to a different feed. So you need to go and find the video version if you listen to uh, the new media show, for example, which this week used Riverside and it sounded fantastic. So congratulations, Rob and Todd, for that. I'm sure that it wasn't planned particularly, but it did sound really, really good. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, if you want to, you can watch that show in video, but you have to subscribe to a different RSS feed. And I think one of the new podcast namespace alternate enclosures would allow you to basically have that in there in the same feed as your audio so that your podcast app could just switch as Spotify does switch between the video and the audio on demand that seems to make rather a lot more sense so um, yeah so it might be interesting to see whether or not there are more of these video uh, podcasts uh, coming up but video has always been you know a thing that you can get and it's um, quite patchy in terms of support in many of the different podcast apps. So um, there's a video podcast that I watch called Media Watch from the ABC in Australia. It's available everywhere. Uh, it's a great podcast um, that just happens to be a TV show as well. Although it works fine with just the audio, but that's a good one to have a quick test and see whether or not you can actually see the video mm. on there. Now, another exclusive, uh, staying on the topic of Spotify... Uh, you had a look at the podcast market in Latvia, and it turns out Spotify is doing quite well. Indeed. So Latvia, 1.9 million people. Where is Latvia? On the north of Europe, inside the old USSR Russian, on the uh, coastline. You're a very well-read man, yes. It's on the Baltic Sea, between Estonia and Lithuania. And uh, the Latvian public broadcaster... Uh, Latvian Radio or Latvia Radio um, did a bit of online discussion with Latvian podcasters and listeners and they have the results of a study that they did as well. The number one podcast platform by far is YouTube, 75%. Number two is Spotify at 36%. You have to go all the way down to number four for Apple Podcasts, which is 10%. Google Podcasts with their traditional number three slot. Um, so that was interesting seeing. And I think also interesting seeing was just, you know, the amount of people who are consuming podcasts is about 20% every month in Latvia. So it's nowhere near as high as it is in the US or Canada or the UK, for example. But uh, it's always interesting to peer into a different 
country. So uh, the Latvian data is uh, was published on Pod News um, a couple of days ago, as was data from Italy as well. Um, it's the, I think it's the third release of the Ipsos data from uh, Italy, which again shows obviously that podcasting is uh, growing and doing quite well in that country. Now, funny you mentioned about the other bit of me knowing where Latvia was. There's a classic piece of audio from Noel Fielding. He's a pop artist and a presenter on Bake Off. He was in America with Chelsea Handler. And she was asking him, do you know where Nicaragua was? Have you guys ever heard of Nicaragua? And he explained where it was. And she said, well, that's amazing. He went, yeah, because we schooled in England. so." (laughs) (laughs) Oof. Right, moving on. Last week, I was lucky enough to catch up with Genevieve Hassan. Now, she has a podcast called Celebrity Catch-Up, Life After That Thing I Did. And I was only interested, because you wrote about it, James, that she has got an amazing deal with Virgin, where fundamentally it is available now to all 5 million uh, Virgin Atlantic passengers. And I wanted to find out how she got that deal. Now, she left the BBC. She was a celebrity editor. She calls herself a podcast virgin. So literally, she went from being a podcast virgin to take off with Virgin. And I wanted to find out how she got that takeoff. I'm very excited about it. It will see my podcast be on all Virgin Atlantic planes from the 1st of October. Obviously, it's just started last week, initially for a six-month contract, but hopefully all things going well, it will continue after that. For me, as a solo podcaster, very exciting that the podcast is going to be put in front of Virgin's 5 million annual passengers. That's 415 odd thousand a month. How did the Virgin deal come about? I'm really proud that I've managed to achieve what I've achieved and do this deal with Virgin because most airlines use a content service provider to provide all their films, TV, music. And Virgin is one of the few airlines that actually curates all its own content. And they pride themselves on looking for what they describe as hidden gems to show people on their plane. And I actually approached them and pitched them because I flew a lot with Virgin. I really liked the brand and had loved their entertainment content whilst on board. And I thought actually we'd be a really good fit in terms of being fun, a little bit rock star, a bit nostalgia, innovative. And in my pitch to them, I thought, actually, we're really similar in that when Virgin first entered the airline market, they were this challenger brand that they had to compete against the big boys. And I feel like that is me doing this podcast, especially in the genre that I'm doing in the TV and film category, which is saturated with celebrities interviewing other celebrities and podcasts that already have established fan bases. I I thought that there was a good similarity and synergy there. So that's why I pitched for at the time when I said, actually, I think we're a really good fit. What do you think? And they do actually get approached by a lot of podcasters and they listen to them and a lot of them, well, all of them haven't been right. So this is a really unique situation that they have said yes to me. And they actually took podcasts um, off their planes during the pandemic and mine's the first that's back on board. Really proud of what I've managed to achieve. What is this podcast about? Celebrity Catch Up, Life After That Thing I Did. I always I describe it as um, an unashamedly nostalgic celebrity interview show where I celebrate much-loved TV, film and music of the 1980s to the early noughties with the stars that made them, where we reminisce and then talk about how their lives unfolded after. So one half is very much nostalgia. The first half is we very much reminisce, but usually the thing that 
brought them to fame. And then in the second half, we talk about life after that thing. And I wanted to do it mainly to illustrate a couple of things. One, that celebrities are people just like the rest of us. They are human. They experience all the ups and downs and trials and tribulations of life that the rest of us do. They just do it in the spotlight. And sometimes they have stories which aren't known to people, but I feel like they've got very human stories that people would relate to. And I enjoy sharing those stories. But I also wanted to illustrate how the world of showbiz is quite fickle. So the guests that I have are a mixture of people who completely went out of show business after that thing that they did and other people who star completely rose after that thing they did. So I wanted to show both sides. The nostalgia is the main element for me that I think that's the thing that people will really enjoy reminiscing. And then the second half is, oh, actually this person's quite interesting and I like to check out more of what they're doing. Now, you were the former BBC Entertainment editor. Is that why you started to do this? Did you think, I've got this amazing black book, let's start a podcast? What was the seed that made you say, I've got a podcast in me? <laughs> yeah, I was one of the GT editors on the BBC News website, Arts and Entertainment Desk. So I spent just over a decade interviewing A-list celebrities on red carpets and expensive hotel rooms for five minutes at a time. You can never really get into the nitty gritty in those five minutes. It's a very superficial five minutes. And people always used to say, wow, that's a really cool job. But you never really get very much out of those five minutes. And I actually left the BBC in 2017. Four years later, I'm, I'm now here. And the idea from the podcast came last May. I want to say last April, and I was watching a very old episode of Top of the Pops from 1991 <laughs> at about one o'clock in the morning, which for anyone's not aware, it's a very famous music show here in the UK. And Martika was singing and I thought, oh, I wonder what happened to Martika. So I got my phone out, Googled as you do. And then I thought, oh, this could be a good idea for a podcast. You know, I'm sure loads of people are wondering what's happened to people from the 80s or the 90s. And that was like the seed of the idea that started it, which then developed into it's not just a whatever happened to dot 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 podcast or a where are they now it is to show that there is the element of nostalgia and actually people have really interesting stories. It's just coincidental that the pandemic happened to happen at that time. But I found especially around that time, the pandemic, nostalgia was very popular, but people were really responding to nostalgia. It was that kind of feel like in times of uncertainty, you tend to reach for things that are familiar and nostalgia is, is one of those things. Lots of people were watching box sets and old TV programs. I don't know if that was like prominent in my mind at the time when I did it, but yes, that's like where the, the germ of the idea came from. Were you able to create the podcast? Do you have that technical background? Do you have the knowledge? Did you have podcasts that you'd done before? Or was it just, this is my first one? Look, I've knocked it out of the park. No, podcast virgin. So I am a multimedia journalist by trade. So I do have experience of online TV and radio skills, but I've never made a podcast before. And you asked before, was did I just get out a black book and get some guests? It was anything, but this past year has been a real exercise. Rejection and perseverance. I was used to, and perhaps took for granted the position that I was in when I was working for the BBC, where I could ring up a PR or, or agent or publicist and say, hi, it's Genevieve from the BBC. Can I speak to so-and-so please? And they'd snap your wrist off. Now I'm in this position, especially at the start, whereas hi, I'm Genevieve. I'm trying to start a podcast. I don't know how many listeners it's going to have yet, if anyone's going to listen to it, but can you please give me some time with your talent to guest on my podcast, which I don't know if I'm going to continue with. And I can see why a lot of people said no. <laughs> it was really difficult. It was literally the, the amount of rejection emails that I I received or just being plain ignored, which was probably the most soul destroying thing about this whole thing. It was really hard. I think 
I, I don't want to say I was lucky, but I, for my first series, the majority of people that were my guests, I got through direct approaches. And there was one person who, I won't name him because he'll get a million people probably contacting him. Uh, but one person who was one of my guests who I call my fairy godfather, who he actually followed me on Twitter first. And I approached him and I said, oh, would you mind guesting on the podcast? And he said, yeah. And he instantly legitimized me. He helped pave the way for other people to think, oh, if he's doing it, well, I can do it too. I found the thing that has been most difficult has been the gatekeepers for the guests. So the publicist, PRs, agents, managers are all the people who obviously they get dozens and dozens of requests for their, their talent every day and they have to pick and choose. And I get it. They want to choose the ones that are going to give them the most eyeballs and, and earlobes and a new podcast is not likely to do that for them. But when I've approached guests directly and I pitched them the idea of the show and the spirit behind it and why I want to do it, they're all like, yeah, great, we'll do it. So I've been lucky that I've been able to have direct approaches and it's not like these people are my friends already or I know people who can get into me. It's, it's been through trying to get them on social media or going through their website or something else. So yeah, it's been a real challenge, but, but I'm very proud of what I've achieved. It'd be nice now to turn up, I can get you 5 million listens. When are you coming on? <laughs> yeah, it's like that Julia Roberts pretty woman moment, isn't it? When she goes back into the shop and then yeah. she says, do you remember me before? So yeah, I'm hoping that now that I've got this version deal, it will help give me a little bit more leverage to book guests because that's the thing I've always struggled against is I've not had the leverage of either a, a production company or media organization that has the, the clout and the legit legitimacy of their product. I don't have the marketing budget to promote the podcast. And obviously I'm self-funded, so I don't have six or seven people working on my podcast doing all, all the jobs needed to put out a product and you know, I'm doing it all myself. So I hope that my achievement gives other indie podcasters like the inspiration to feel like, oh, she can do it. So can we, if you're feeling like you're going through a bit of a rough patch, which I definitely had last year when I was getting lots of rejections, I hope this will spur people on to be thinking, oh, actually, I can do it. It's not all about the big boys. Other people can play the game too. What was your expectation when you started? Did you just think, oh, well, I'll do this for a while, see how it goes, maybe get 100 listeners, 1,000 listeners, 10,000. Where did your head say, this might go? That's a good question. I think I thought because it was what I did for a, a profession, I can do this. <laughs> and I did actually book my first guest within a week of me sending out my first emails. And I thought, oh, this is easy. I can do it. And then I just hit a wall of no's for six weeks afterwards. And I originally thought, well, I'm going to wait until I've got four guests that say yes before I'm actually going to start anything. I'm not just going to put one episode out and then be trying to chase my tail the entire time. So I wanted to make sure that I had four guests in the can that I knew that this was a viable product and that if I couldn't take it anywhere else, at least four episodes, I thought, well, that's a good enough amount of episodes to put out and say, I gave it a good go. I put out four if I have to say goodbye to it. It looks better than trialing and failing at one. And what, why did you want to do this? Was this because you wanted to start a new career? This was going to be something as a maybe calling card? Or is this something that you are going to do continuously as an independent? Where do you see it going? Honestly, I started it as a hobby. I started it as something, as a creative outlet that I thought would satisfy me creatively. I'm just thinking now that if I was working at the BBC still and I said, I've got this idea for a podcast, I pretty much guarantee it would not have been made. It would have been, no, we haven't got the budget or no, you'd have to go through many layers of red tape and so on. And then they would get a celebrity to front it because 
that's what everyone does now. But there would be nothing, you know, I'd probably end up doing all the legwork still somewhere around the back or maybe it'd be completely taken out of my hands and given to someone else and I probably wouldn't be able to be involved in it. So having the creative control to make my own podcast has been really great. But yeah, I started as a hobby thinking I'm going to make this because I want to make money. I just thought I want to make this because I like making good content. I like sharing people's stories and I want to share those stories with other people and hopefully people will enjoy it. So I never did it to think, oh, I can make some money out of it. Maybe that's just because I came from my BBC background where I guess because it's license fee payer funded and not commercial, you're not thinking about the money and you're not thinking about advertising and stuff. You're just thinking about the quality of your content and it's already funded. And I guess that's me because I'm self-funding it. So the money is is there. It's just there. Um, and obviously the BBC can't advertise either. So I think probably I have that mindset of thinking, well, I'm just going to create great content. Hopefully people will listen to it and they'll enjoy it. The thing that I found very interesting since I started podcasting is when I tell people that I do it, one of like the first things they ask me is, are you making any money? How are you making money? Are you monetizing it? And I don't know if it's because it's linked to the career that I had before, but I find it very interesting that people immediately jump on, are you earning any money? And they can't understand why I would just do it as a hobby and just want to create free content for entertainment for people to listen to. Nobody asks golfers who spend 60, 70 pound a month on their golf membership with their two, 300 pound golf clubs who go and spend four or five hours every weekend playing golf. Nobody says to them, well, you're spending all this money playing golf. How are you monetizing it? How are you making money from it? Or people that mountain bike who spend hundreds on mountain bikes or photography. I guess maybe people might be able to monetize photography, but you get my gist. It's, these are hobbies that people do. They spend significant amounts of money on it and they get nothing back from it financially. And I'm not spending anywhere near 60, 70 pounds for golf. It, it's relatively cheap to podcast. But I find it very interesting that people immediately jump on how are you monetizing this? How are you doing it? And I don't know if that's just because within the podcast community, there's a lot of people who have a podcast as a sales funnel for their business. And so monetization is very important to them. I've actually found it quite a struggle to chat with other people within the podcasting community who just do it for entertainment, who just do it for fun and who aren't concerned about monetizing that are operating at the kind of scale that I am, which I just find very, I find very interesting. I think, quick question, now that you've got this success, who in your wildest dreams would you love to interview? Oh, that's a good question. But it's a really difficult question because I've already interviewed so many people. I had over a decade of doing it as a career that spoken to pretty much everyone. So yeah, but but it's still, it's never been about these are people that I want to speak to because I think they're really famous. It's always been, these are the people that I want to speak to, but I want them to have a really good story that people can connect to on a human level. So they're going to enjoy it because I think one of the reasons why my podcast is different from other celebrity interviews is usually I have people that aren't on the publicity promotion circuit. So they haven't been everywhere and they're not saying exactly the same thing every time. And I have a unusual knack of being able to get people to tell me things that they don't normally tell other people. <laughs> and so I get really interesting stories out of people. I get them to open up in ways they don't normally open up with other people. Maybe that's because again, I have an hour with people when other people have like their five, 10 minutes. How many episodes have you done so far? How many episodes have I done? I have had 21 guests so far. I typically have nine. 
guests a season purely because the first series I put out my first four episodes and I had four guests lined up to record and over I release episodes fortnightly and in the period between me putting out episode four and then five all my four guests dropped felt well, they all fell through and I was left with nothing and so I put out an episode that was three minutes long that just said I was supposed to have a guest but sorry I don't and I just explained how it's really hard doing what I do it's so difficult as a solo podcaster to get celebrities to be on your podcast it's so difficult and soul destroying and I was just honest about it and I had friends actually message me after saying wow you were honest <laughs> in that episode it was like yeah because that that's how it is people don't actually realize how much work goes into making and producing this content often for free that people aren't paying for at all and I just wanted to be honest about that and say yeah I had some guests they all fell through sorry I don't have an episode for you today would you like to see your podcast move into a more subscription-based model or would you always want to keep it free? I don't think subscription is for me. A few reasons, but I know that in terms of if you're looking at the podcast audience landscape, I saw some research recently where they asked people their feelings on whether podcasts should be free or not. And younger listeners tend to thinking, yes, it's fine to pay for podcasting, but older listeners lean more to know they should be free. And purely because of the age demographic of my podcast, which is 72% is aged between 35 and 59. Well, they're in that demographic that feel like they don't want to pay for a podcast, which is fine. I think I would like to just continue putting the content out for free and I guess, subsidize my costs through something like sponsorship. And I do say at the end of every episode, if you'd like to support, it would be brilliant if you felt like you wanted to buy me a coffee or donate something, which will help keep the lights on, which would be amazing. And honestly, in the what 15 months I've been doing this, I think I've probably accumulated less than a hundred pounds. Indicates to me that I know from my listening figures and the amount of news pickup I get from my episodes and obviously the Virgin deal that I know that I have a good product and I know that people enjoy my product and people listen to it and people subscribe to it, but people still don't want to pay for the content. I wonder if you've heard or come across this thing called value for value and Satoshi's. Is that the crypto thing? You're bang on the money. <laughs> it's very embryonic. I'm not going to say that it's you know, mainstream right now, but it's beginning to catch on. I don't want to subscribe because I might not want to listen to every episode and I don't want to have to go and listen to ads. But what I would like to do is actually listen to this episode and while I'm listening to it, oh my God, that was so great. Thank you, Genevieve. I, I'm going to give you some Satoshis. And it's better than a like, it's better than a heart. It fundamentally is a tip jar and it's a digital token, as James calls it, which says thank you very much. And then eventually you can convert that back into fiat currency, i.e. sterling don't know if it's that something you've thought about or is that something that you, you know would be interesting to you not really because it's still that extra step for someone to have to do and i think people like doing what they're comfortable with and what they're familiar with and i don't think crypto is in a place yet where people would feel comfortable enough to to do that especially again the age demographic of my audience crypto is very foreign <laughs> So <laughs> it's unlikely, that's unlikely to work for them. It's a shame that a large portion of my potential listeners 
are of the age where they don't know what a podcast is, they don't know how to access a podcast, they don't know to, where to listen to one. So that's another reason why the Virgin deal is so exciting because mm -hmm. it gives me access to those people who ordinarily wouldn't be listening to podcasts. So last question, where do you think this takes you next? I have no idea. <laughs> I'll see where the wind takes me. I'm just going to obviously continue making the podcast for as long as people want to listen to it, for as long as I'm able to have guests who are happy to to be on it. When I had Wobble last year, it got to the point where I was like, oh, it's so difficult booking guests. Why am I doing this? I'm not earning any money from it. It costs me money to do it. Why am I torturing myself? Should I just give it up? <laughs> just get the hint. It's too difficult. Stop doing it. So yeah, I'll keep doing it for as long as people want to listen to it and for as long as I can have guests. And when it starts being something that people want to listen to, then I'll, I'll take the hint and, and maybe wind down. Brilliant. Genevieve, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Genevieve Hassan, I've listened to a few podcasts on uh, aeroplanes. Uh, do you remember air travel, Sam? Well, you're going on holiday next <laughs> week. You'll be, fi you'll be fine. We, st we still can't travel anywhere here in Australia. So still, but there we are. But yes, uh, there's a bunch of um, podcasts on uh, seatbacks and it's such a clever place to end up uh, going. So uh, many congratulations to her, I think. Uh, James, don't don't hold your breath. I may well be at Heathrow Airport for a week. That's where the the UK passport for COVID system went down yesterday, and it meant that nobody could get through the gates. <laughs> well, of course, well, of course, it went down yesterday because nothing in your country works anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I love that slopey shoulder, your country. I love it. Dear, oh dear. I mean, you know, I've just subscribed to a new news service here today in Australia. It's called Flash. Uh, and it's it's Rupert Murdoch, but you know it's eight dollars a month, so hey, who cares? But um, it's got Sky News Australia, which is dreadful, but it it also has access to Sky News UK, and literally everything. Whenever I turn it on, it's like uh, what's broken today, <laughs> the what's broken today section. <laughs> um, yeah, bless. Bless. Have you still have you still got enough food over there? I'm okay at the moment. You're doing all right in yeah, the cupboard. Yeah, that, that little paunch on me has been growing for a while, so I've got a little reserve if I need it for a while. Yeah, yeah. And the wine is still coming in, is it? No. Oh, <laughs> there is going to be a riot soon. Uh -oh. People don't realise that wine prices have tripled. Uh oh. <sighs> Crikey! Uh -oh, let's, indeed. Now, let's move on. <laughs> move on. Yes. Well, we still can. Now, Apple Podcasts for Creators has updated its podcast hosting providers page. I didn't even know it existed, let alone updated it. Uh, with 12 new podcast hosts and various filters. James, where was this page before? Um, it, it's been there for a long time, actually, but it's never changed. And it's only had about six or seven podcast hosts on there. And um, I have been asking questions in the past about... Uh, what do you have to do to get on this list? Is this, you know, is this a paid-for thing? Uh, it's not. Is this um, something where Apple gets some kickbacks from new customers? No, it isn't. Um, but Apple won't tell me how you get onto that particular page. But it's a big list of decent podcast hosts that you might want to end up using. Buzzsprout is on there, uh, our sponsor, so it's great to see them uh, on that particular page, um, as are many other podcast hosts. And it's really interesting seeing those new podcast hosts have been added there. Um, Apple Podcasts say, you know, they're doing it for the benefit of the community, uh, which is awfully kind of them. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so it was interesting seeing that they finally updated that after many, many years of that uh, list being the same old, same old. I will have the link to that page if you're interested in our show notes. Now, Facebook. Oh, let's see what they're up to. Facebook has launched an audio hub on their mobile apps, including podcasts and live audio rooms. You'll find it on the well-named Watch tab for audio listeners. <laughs> obviously, Watch. and obviously, uh, it's only available to our US cousins. Uh, so me and you, mate, that's right. we haven't got a hope in hell of getting on it. That's right. It's only available to 4.5% of the world. Um, so that's good. Well done, Facebook. Um, but they are, you know, sort of pushing a few podcast things into their app. Um, so we understand, not that I can see it uh, and not that I can get my podcast on there or indeed this one. Uh, so cheers. Thanks for that. Um, what they are doing, though, is that um, they are seemingly asking the odd UK or Australian podcaster to add your RSS feeds. As far as I can work out, you can't actually add your RSS feed. So even if you get the email from Facebook saying, you've got a podcast, why don't you add the RSS feed to your page? And you, then you click on the on the link and it won't actually allow you. So not quite sure what's going on there. But um, interesting to see, given that so many people use Facebook and given that Facebook does very well with old people, uh, which isn't necessarily something that uh, Spotify works with, um, it could be the thing that changes everything. And maybe I'm just being a little bit sarcastic about Mr. Zuckerberg. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, who knows? So interesting to see if you do get that email and you are in the US, if in, in the, the only supported country in the world at the moment, um, then I would definitely do that. And it would be really interesting to find out how you do. I still haven't found a lesser known spotted podcast on Facebook. So I assume if somebody in the US has been asked to upload their RSS feed, mm. that if I just followed their page, shouldn't I just be able to see their podcast irrelevant of my location? No, I did a test on that and no, you can't. So even if it's been added to somebody's page, uh, the visibility of it is turned off for us in the, you know, in the, in the other countries. Um, so yeah, so we don't get to see it at all, which of course means that if you are on a podcast, you cannot promote, you can't mention Facebook podcasts because you have no, just the same as Amazon podcasts, because you have no guarantee that it will actually work in the territory that your listener is currently in. So, um, uh, so either you use DAI for that sort of thing, or you just don't mention Facebook as a podcast, um, uh, place. It could well though be that... It's a bit like Spotify in that people find new shows on Facebook and then subscribe in a proper podcast player. That may well be the thing, and in which case, great. I'm looking forward to it. But um, it's difficult to talk about something when you can't actually see it. Oh, and one other thing I have done, and I don't know if this is going to prompt the Facebook people but i have tagged my facebook page podcast now as well so it has radio mm. and podcast it allowed me to do it so i thought i'd do it don't know if that flags anything yeah. but there you go that's what that's what i've done as well i'm patiently waiting um although although of course there has been a change of the law here in australia very recently where um, a judge has basically said that um, we are now responsible for whatever people write on our Facebook pages. 
um, uh, legally. So that means that if you, Mr. Sethi, were to come along and post something on the Pod News Facebook page saying that, um, you know, Tony Abbott eats raw onions or something, uh, if Tony Abbott didn't like that very much, then he could sue and I would be in trouble, not you. Maybe there's a feature in Facebook to turn off comments. Maybe that's the only thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. All moderated comments only where you have to see everyone first. Yes, and I don't, I, I don't, I don't think it does that. That's the problem. No, it doesn't. Anyway. Moving on. YouTube. Uh, YouTube Music is to make background listening available for free. Um, but they've only done that in Canada, strangely. Is that, is that a thing? <laughs> what is this? So YouTube Music is the Spotify equivalent for, um, for uh, YouTube. Uh, so it's a music service. And um, it used to be that... Uh, It's free for everybody uh, in terms of an app, but if you don't pay, then you only get the videos and you only get to um, enjoy the music if you have your screen on, because that's where the adverts are, uh, because you're fed video adverts. But they seem to have done some weird deal in Canada and they will be rolling it out in other places. I believe that the US and the uh, UK are following suit relatively quickly to basically mean that YouTube Music works as a free music app um, on, uh, you know, for anyone. Um, And it works just in the same way as uh, Spotify does. I think YouTube are getting very, very aggressive against uh, Spotify. And um, yeah, and it's a pretty good service. So that would be interesting. What Chrome Unboxed are also saying is that the app is going to be merged with Google Podcasts. Brilliant. That's what we need. Uh, And the company is also rolling out live translations and a better subtitle editor for the videos. So, you know, they're doing some interesting stuff there. But um, yeah, always interesting watching what YouTube are doing. Will YouTube be the YouTube of podcasting? That's the question. Didn't they have an open position for somebody to come and head up podcasting on YouTube we talked about last week? Yes, they did. So they are looking for a head of podcasts. Um, I, I still maintain it's um, it's essentially for people like, uh, you know, the, the chap that we were talking about earlier on, Internet Sensation. Uh, you know, those sorts of YouTuber stuff. I, I think that it's probably for that. But, you know, many other commentators have basically been saying that uh, YouTube Music is going to copy Spotify because that's worked so well and move all of the podcasts out of Google Podcasts into YouTube Music, uh, which would be the craziest thing ever for YouTube to end up doing. Please don't do that, YouTube, if you're listening. Well, uh, Or indeed, Google Podcasts. It would be nice, though, if Google Podcasts... I was listening to Adam and Dave show on there because they're not on Spotify and they're not on Apple. Mm. And mm. I thought, oh, OK... And you, you listen to it for 50 minutes, and then if you turn off Google Podcasts, it doesn't store the position. It's so frustrating. You have to then remember where, they, where, they, where you got to. It doesn't hold, oh, really? doesn't hold oh. the position. Oh, it, works, it, work, it works fine on a real phone. Ah, bug or feature. <laughs> that's what I'd like to say. Bug or feature. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's probably Somebody it. else challenging YouTube this week. Uh, Clever.fm calls itself the YouTube of podcasting. Yes. Timely. What, what's that then? I've got an alert that goes off every time somebody uses the hackneyed phrase, the YouTube of podcasting, um, because it generally means that people don't know what they're talking about. Uh, Clever, this company, claims to be, quotes, creating the most interactive podcast experience on the market... And they say that they solve the podcasting platform problem forever. They don't explain what the podcasting platform 
problem is and also it just basically looks as if they've got comments. Oh, brilliant. Another place for comments for, um, you know, uh, for doubtless the Australian High Court to work out that I'm responsible for somehow. Um, so great. Uh, that's all that we need. Um, but if Clever is actually being clever, then I would love to find out how clever Clever are being. <laughs> Anyway, let's get to our favourite bit of the week. It's that time, James. It's Boostergram Corner. Boostergram Corner. Oh, yes. Boostergram Corner. Yes, don't play twice. Uh, There are now 2,209 podcasts that are value for value enabled, which is uh, pretty good. That's growing nice and fast. If your podcast isn't value for value enabled yet, you should make it value for value enabled. Just do a search on podnews.net for the the word value for value, which is all one word with a number four in the middle. And last week, one fountain listener, woohoo, Oscar, you must be happy, showed their support to the podcast index by boosting them with 500,000 sats. Boost! Over $280. Now, I assume that's US and not your dollars. Yeah. But that's that's a big boost, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that's a tremendous boost. Um, and I think I think one of the things is that was actually, te- that was, you know, part of a test of how these things work. Um, so, yeah, that, uh, you know, I mean, a great, a great example of what you can do. It's not just for tiny little amounts of uh, sats, it's for, you know, really big bits, like, um, like uh, half a million sats, as this person did. Um, so that's a very good thing, so, so far as I'm aware. Uh, Boostergrams came in uh, from, well, from a bunch of people. Um, Adam Curry boosted us 5,000 sats using CurioCaster, saying, just keeping the Boostergram corner alive. Uh, he listened to our interviews you mentioned earlier with uh, Chris uh, Messina and said, I remember the Atom folks well from back in the day. He doesn't necessarily say that he remembers them positively or negatively. But anyway, no, he, um, it, it wasn't a uh, fond from memory. That's that was very clear. <laughs> but interesting to uh, to uh, see that, and also Dave, um, the Pod Sage, um, has said great interview with Chris. Um, I, he, he, uh, Dave says, I'm not sure he was up to speed with podcasting 2.0 enough, um, but the perspective was valuable from a spec builder like him. Uh, absolutely right. 12112 sats sent using Fountain. There must be a good reason for 12112 sats. Uh, I must find that out. I actually think Dave and Chris, if they ever got in a room together, would actually do magic. Um, Chris has got a great brain. Dave's got a great brain. And I think mm. Dave would love to listen to some of the, I guess, historical comments and conversations that led to the decisions that were made around Atom and around where they were going with the open web. And I think Dave, you know, uh, if you want an intro to Chris or Chris, just reach out to Dave, because I think the two of you will, you know, enjoy it, if nothing else. Adam also uh, gave us another boost, saying that uh, polls can be linked from chapters in the podcast namespace, which is nice. 120, one, two, three, four sats sent using CurioCaster. Uh, Oscar Merry says, great interview. He liked your interview. Sam, you have, you, your, your interview seems to have gone down incredibly well with uh, Chris. Um, a stack of twos, I believe, is, is how you say. It turns out that um, Boostergrams is a bit like bingo. Uh, in in that uh, you know it's not it's not four little ducks it's a stack of twos, um, so thank you uh, uh, Oscar for that sent using Fountain which is nice we mentioned also last week that Spotify had published a history of podcasting 
and forgot to put Adam Curry in there, or maybe even took Adam Curry out of there. Um, Adam sent another uh, boostergram, and I'm going to have to bleep this, but he says, Spotify for not mentioning me after McKinsey interviews me for their internal research. They are clearly worried about any mention that might lead folks to podcasting 2.0. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're making friends with uh, with Mr. Curry there, uh, our uh, Spotify. So uh, yeah, that would that was a thing, wasn't it? Yeah, and we had a great one from uh, the guys at Mere Mortals, uh, Kyron. Good to hear that you are now value for value enabled, Sam. Yeah, it's it's an interesting process, but it's well worth doing. Uh, you old farts, that's my words, yes, not his, um, are doing pretty well with staying up with the times. Yeah, we're not doing too bad, James. Yeah, thank you for the boost, uh, Kyron. That's uh, kind of you. 112 sats sent using Fountain. Thank you to the person who sent a rude Boostergram, which I'm not going to mention. Too cowardly to even give your name, but thank you for the 2,231 sats sent using CurioCaster. I will enjoy spending your money, um, uh, even if you are rude. And Gary Arndt uh, sent a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful Boostergram, hasn't he? He has. He says, I look forward to the show every week. It's on the top of my playlist every Thursday. Thanks, Gary. Uh, we work hard to try and get this out for you every week. And he has sent an independence boost. <laughs> see what he's done there? God. 1776 sats using Fountain. You see, I'm learning all of this stuff. I'm listening to the Podcasting 2.0 podcast, and I understand how all of this works. Thank you to everybody who's uh, boosted us. I really appreciate it, and Sam really appreciates it too, or at least I he do. will do when I, when I share some of this with him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there is always that. If you, um, if you want to send us a boost, then hold that boost button down in your podcast boost! app, and if you don't have a boost button in your podcast app, then it's time to get a better one at newpodcastapps.com. The Fountain app is a very beautiful thing indeed. Go podcasting! Now, a couple of extra bits and pieces. Uh, a bit of interesting news. Um, Susie Warhurst has been appointed head of international Apple Podcasts. She was the SVP of content at Acast, uh, and she's going to work out of London. And I reached out to her last night. So, uh, yeah, we'll see if we can get her on the show. Uh, it'll be interesting to get her thoughts. I'm sure that Apple won't let her on the show, but we can try. <laughs> I'm absolutely convinced that Apple won't let her on the show. Uh, I contacted Apple and I said, um, uh, oh, I noticed that Susie Warhurst has been appointed your head of international for Apple Podcasts. What will the head of international do? You know, do you have a, do you have a statement about it? And the only response that I got back was I can confirm that she is now working for it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thanks, Apple. She uh, has entered the Borg. <laughs> she is not allowed to speak anymore. We will never hear from her again. Um, yes. She spoke at Next Radio uh, about three or four years ago, um, talking about branded podcasts. If you would like to see that, then just search her name and uh, Next Radio, or one word, on YouTube, and um, you can uh, watch that. Which was a great, um, a great thing that she ended up doing uh, for us. So uh, yeah, it's um, good to see more talent. Um, being subsumed into the Borg that we will never hear from again alongside uh, Jake Shapiro from Radio Public, who um, used to be everywhere and uh, has done literally nothing public since uh, um, he uh, started working for Apple Podcasts a couple of years ago. Um, I, I, I do wish that Apple Podcasts would use their people because they've got some really good people working for them. Um, and it'd be great if they could actually... 
speak publicly, although I do understand the reasons why. Just brought a song to my mind when you said that. He's everywhere and nowhere, baby. Uh, anyway, that's the line from a song. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> random. Ev- oh, no, totally random. <laughs> uh, events and awards. No, one one last thing before events. Oh. Um, the, the Amazon Wandry position is still open for the European head. Um, I wonder if anyone's gay, going for it. Oh, is it? Any news? Is it? Yeah, ah. it's still it's still open. Yes. No one's announced it yet. Yes. So. Oh, I, had, I had no idea that that was uh, still open. Um I'm sure we can think of many people that might uh, go for that. But, uh, yes, yeah, so a clever clever company, I'm wondering. Hmm. Right, you were talking about events and awards. Go on, James. I was. Um, so, yes, events and awards. Are you off to Paris in France on October the 14th? That's today. Uh, so the quick answer is no, you're not. But uh, over this weekend is the Paris Podcast Festival. Uh, which should be very good. Uh, One of the beautiful things that a company has done in uh, France, Audio Means, which is a French podcast host, is that they have published a thing called Podcast City. It's beautiful. It's a mapped imaginary city of 486 podcasts. Uh, I link to that um, today from uh, Pod News. It's complete with outdoor cafes and a medieval old town and a business district and parks. And the only thing missing from this imaginary map, frankly, uh, to make it properly authentic, is an eye-wateringly expensive café au lait from a waiter who doesn't like you very much and wishes you'd leave. Um, (laughs) Oh, ouch, personal experience is coming back. (laughs) But that's a beautiful piece of work. And the Paris Podcast Festival, I believe you'll you'll be able to buy a copy of that framed at the Paris Podcast podcast festival so that's a good thing uh, other things are going on aren't they sam as well yeah the 26th annual webby awards are now open enter by the early entry deadline which is up until october the 29th anything from the webby awards have you got any more have you uh, have you won any webby awards uh, mr seth never been entered for it it's not never been entered it's you that enter yourself that's how that works have you not won any okay i can see where this is leading to no, none, none. <laughs> zero <laughs> nil nul point yeah go on yeah i won two how many james I have you got two Uh, When I was working at uh, Virgin Radio, we ended up winning one year. We ended up winning the judges' um, choice of best radio website and then the the listeners' choice as well, or the the people's choice. Um, uh, They ended up, uh, the people ended up voting us in and had nothing to do with the fact that we had a please vote for us in the Webby Awards in our newsletter for, I think, two months. Um, But uh, yes, so a wonderful thing to actually have two Webby Awards and uh, rather annoyingly I couldn't even go to pick them up so I sent uh, one of my team uh, Anthony off to uh, pick them up um, and, and uh, I believe his flight was cancelled so he very nearly didn't get there but um, but yes yeah, so last year uh, the Webby Awards received over 13,500 entries from around the world they've got some really good judges for the podcast section this uh, year uh, including Jen Sargent who's the CEO of uh, Wondery um, Ira Madison the Third, who is a co-host of Keep It, and Suchin Pak, who's co-host of Add to Cart, and many more. Um, so um, they really know what they're doing. Um, they have uh, paid to promote their uh, awards in Pod News over the next five or six weeks. Um, but uh, it's a well worth, you know, it's well worth entering. Oh look, it's probably them now. I'm going to take a wild guess that Ira Madison is an American. <laughs> you think Ira Madison the Third? 
<laughs> James, what else has been happening for you in Podland this week? Ah, well, too many early mornings. You can probably tell I'm do lally with the early mornings. I was up to talk to some Canadians um, uh, this morning, yesterday morning, talking to an American, a Brit and me, doing a consultancy call. Uh, the American was, uh, you know... Sounds like the start of a joke, Yes, though. it does. American, a Brit, and and uh, whatever I am. Um, and An Aussie walks into a bar, yeah. <laughs> and so I was up really early. The Brit was up quite late. And the and the American was just, you know, there in the late afternoon. It was all, all very nice for them. Um, also, I, w- I will be on the Looking Forward podcast with Jeff Ostroff. I enjoyed recording that a couple of days ago. Um, so that was good. Watch out for that. It's a great um, podcast. Jeff is a really good uh, interviewer. Uh, and I launched that brand new website, espanol.soundsprofitable.com, this week as well. What's um, happened for you uh, over the last uh, few weeks and over the next few weeks? Yeah, I, I'm launching a, uh, a new company called Viral Tribe Media with a couple of guys called John and Ben. Uh, there'll be more news about it, but basically it's celebrity podcasts. I know I can hear the groans from some people now, but uh, I think Tom Webster didn't like the idea of celebrity podcasts and nor did uh, several other people at the Radio Today events. But there is a market for it, and so we're going for it. And also I've launched with another friend, uh, a podcasting service called In The Bag, which is a corporate podcasting service. So, yeah, I'll tell... Well, you'll find out more about those maybe on Podland, but I won't market them here. But, yeah, Very nice. that's two of the things I've been doing. Now, I had a question for you, James. Mm. Who who or should I be knocking on the door for? Because I think it's time for a dot .podcast um, TLD. Oh, yeah, for domain names. Yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? There is a dot .audio. Um, I do know that. I have no idea how you get hold of one. No, I, I got hold of one last night called Dot Media, which was great, but uh, no Dot Podcast. Mm. Yeah, I know that the EBU in the uh, in uh, Switzerland own Dot Radio, uh, which you obviously have one of. Yep. Yes, that's a really interesting question. I think it's. Um, I don't know how they work anymore. Um, they always used to work by basically um, uh, one company in the US basically saying no to anybody that wanted one. But um, now I think they're sort of freely open, but you have to spend quite a lot of money to get hold of one. I wonder whether a dot .podcast TLD would be something that um, people would find interesting. And if it is something that people would find interesting, there are a few people who I know who own um, some interesting, um, you know, TLDs. And uh, I wonder whether it would be worthwhile having a chat with them. In fact, I'm going to write down, I'm going to write down George's name right now. There we are, and I will ask him. Excellent. Anyway, yes, uh, that was that was a tangent, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> well, talking of tangents, one last thing. Uh, Audius is a, a little service I'm trying as well. It's a Spotify alternative on the blockchain uh, for listening to music. And surprise, surprise, James, you're on there. Yes, Pod News. You can tune into Pod News on that service, uh, which is a bit weird. So you can update upload your podcasts onto this Audius uh, music app. But um, I've given it a go. I don't recognise any of the music. It's a bit weird, but, um, you know, but you know, it's quite fun for background music and that sort of thing. It's worthwhile giving it a go. It's audius.co. Yeah, it, the, the, the differentiator is it's got a few uh, celebrities behind it, um, Katy Perry being one. Mm. And the idea is that the payment is direct to the actual uh 
musician rather than in Spotify's case where they act as the intermediary. Ah, right. Okay. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I wonder how many uh, musicians actually have the rights to end up doing that because obviously they've signed a contract with their record companies. So I wonder how many musicians really have the rights for that, but that's fascinating. That's why there's no good music on it. (laughs) Now. (laughs) (laughs) That might be it. And that's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Genevieve Hassan, who's the host and producer of Celebrity Catch-Up, Life After That Thing I Did, and Dr. Brian of London, not his real name. Uh, Sam won't be here next week. Um, you going anywhere nice, Sam? Oh, yes, you said you're going to Spain, you're going to Barcelona. Or Heathrow Airport Terminal 5. Which, which, or indeed Heathrow, Air- <laughs> Heathrow Airport Terminal 5, where you'll stand in a queue for four hours. Um, so my co-host will be Sounds Profitable's Brian Barletta. and looking forward to uh, chatting with Brian next week. Yeah, he, will, he might be doing it in Spanish as well. Now, please follow us in your podcast app. Uh, and on Twitter at Podland News, where you can tweet a comment about this week's show or tweet us a question in next week's show. You can also find previous shows on the web at www.podland.news. If you want daily news, you should get Pod News. The newsletter is free at podnews.net. Podcasts can be found in your podcast app, and all the stories we've discussed on Podland today are taken from this week's Pod News. All the links are in the show notes. Our music is from Ignite Jingles, and we're hosted and sponsored by Buzzsprout, our good friends, and Riverside FM. Also our good friends. And keep listening. Yes. <laughs> now, we promised earlier on a, 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 a an extra interview if, um, if Tech Talk doesn't turn you off. Uh, then this will turn you on. Um, uh, We promised an extra interview with uh, Dr. Brian of London about uh, blockchain and the differences between Bitcoin, Ethereum and Hive and why he thinks Ethereum won't survive. We talked about Ethereum earlier and Hive. What is the bloody difference? What (sighs) confuses me as a somebody who understands it, but then I ask basic questions to myself and fall over is, hang on a minute, you've got, blockchain and then you've got sats you've got ethereum and nfts and why are the why are people creating multiple different versions of i'll give you i, I can take you through you can hit record if you want maybe this will be useful yeah, yeah um, go in the beginning there was bitcoin and bitcoin was good but bitcoin does one thing and one thing only it uses a vast amount or an, a growing and currently vast amount of energy as the investment that you've made that keeps everything secure. All Bitcoin is just a big spreadsheet. It's just a list of who has what. This address has this many Bitcoins and this address has this many Bitcoins. And every time you transfer Bitcoins from one address to another, it gets recorded in this big long ledger and it's currently 460 megabyte, uh, gigabytes and you have to download the whole bloody thing before you can do anything. That's Bitcoin. And it just does these records, these transactions backwards and forwards. But the thing that keeps it secure is the investment in computer hardware equipment that is specialized and the energy to run it. And the reason you need all of that energy and all of that computer equipment is someone can't come along and subvert the whole system because it is mathematically possible to subvert the whole system, but currently today you need 51% of all the energy expended so far and all the computers that are currently running it. It's, it's, and that's impossible to amass. Ethereum came along 
as uh, based on the same underlying technology of what's called proof of work. That's what this Bitcoin thing, proof of work. You prove that you have done work and the sum total of all of the energy expended doing the work to date is what guarantees and secures the system. But Ethereum extended something, which is it came with these things called smart contracts. They let you just do more computations than just A gave money to B and B so gave So it's like a macro C. language on top of your spreadsheet. It, exactly. And it's hideously complicated. I have a PhD in computer, in fluid dynamics, and I wrote C++ code. I've looked at the Ethereum code, and I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole because it is so easy to make a mistake. And as we see over and over again, people write these complicated applications, this distributed finance ledger stuff where you put things in escrow and other people, and then they make a mistake and suddenly $2 billion goes missing. And then you're like in the hands of the guy who found your mistake, whether he's going to give you your billion dollars back. That's Ethereum. And, it, and it's a, if you ever listen to Vitalik Buterin, speak, you will understand why it's so damn complicated. Hive goes in a different direction and Hive is a what's called proof of state. And it also works differently. It doesn't expend this, it doesn't do these useless calculations as the way of proving that you've done something and securing the network. It secures the network based on how much of a share in the whole system do you have. And then you vote for witnesses. And it, it, it doesn't do needless, it doesn't waste needless computer cycles, which is why it is so fast. Every three seconds, there's a new block and it can handle so much more data as in text data, blog posts. It doesn't hold images. They get put somewhere else, which again is a slight centralization issue, but it holds all the text you can imagine. And that's why Podping is so easy to put into it because Podping is just an RSS address repeated. So when we put 14 or 18,000 RSS feeds, RSS lines a day, it's the same as two or 300 blog posts and, and Hive copes with thousands of blog posts a day. So it's, it's trivial, but it, it's an underlying that, that what gives Hive itself its security is that this, the currency of Hive and the voting that we do on Hive is distributed over many hundreds of thousands of active users. The computers that run it, there's about 200 core computers of which the top 20 are the most important. And we vote for those. And I'm getting paid by Hive based on people's votes. People, I put out a proposal. There's a fund that's that Hive itself has and Hive generates some money by inflation. So it inflates its own coin, which is how Bitcoin pays its miners and Ethereum pays miners. Hive also does the same trick, but I get some of that money because people have voted for my project. I said, I want to build value for value on Hive. And they said, yeah, we like the sound of that. We trust. And Brian of London has been here for two years and he's never done anything shady. So we're going to give him $10 an hour. For, so for this is a months. bit like the Silk Road reputation. Um, yeah. If you ever read the book, The Silk Road. And, I, and I haven't, but I, I know the whole story. And, and yeah. It's, I'm getting, okay, I got money for Podping, about $7,200, which, which was paid to me. And the way it gets paid out, and I'm getting money for value now, I'm getting $10.6 an hour, every right. hour for four months. And it's $30,000. I've given $1,000 to a guy in Australia who helped me build something. I've given $1,500 to another guy. 
It's money that I'm paying out to other developers, all of which can be seen. All the people who voted for me can watch what every single dollar I get, mm -hmm. where I put it. I've sent some, the only thing I've sent some off Hive onto uh, Bittrex in order to buy Bitcoin because I need Bitcoin for my lightning side. But I'm being, I'm doing updates. It's all happening in public. And okay, so this is where I get my brain goes. Okay, so I get, I'm pretty much with you. So you've fundamentally got three different blockchain type technologies, right? Hive being a newer one that's around has got different value sets that make it faster, which has been the biggest problem. So when yeah. we were talking about credit card companies, they could fundamentally adopt something like a Hive blockchain and create a virtual currency that they could then translate back into. Okay, let's just stop one thing. Blockchains are an absolutely catastrophically bad database. Right. They are okay. They are the last option you would ever pick if you have to run a database. So if you are Facebook and you're and you want to run your own internal private database, you do not pick a blockchain to be anywhere near you. Visa, Mastercard, none of those will run their system on a blockchain ever. The only time you use a blockchain is when you want to be seen publicly and have it known publicly everything that you are doing. And so or, uh, uh, or you run a private marketplace. So lots of finance companies yes. in the city. As a like, I tell you what should be on private a blockchain. Yeah, what should be on a, block, on a public blockchain, for example, is the, the markets in advertising that do the matching of the buying and the sellers. And Australia actually just put out a, a report yesterday. It's, it's catastrophic, basically, what goes on inside Google and what goes on inside Facebook's own internal markets matching buying and selling. We don't know. It's black box and it's rigged yeah so you don't use a blockchain when you should use and in fact the, the way hive word the core data is stored on a blockchain but what they've built on top of that is a phenomenal system for extracting the data that comes out of the blockchain putting it into a database that then runs all the social features so when you go to a website called like peakd.com that that is your social it looks like your social network it's got blog posts it's got comments and all of those likes and hearts and stuff that website gets all its information in real time from a SQL database, just like any normal site. But what's happening in the background is that it's filling its SQL database from the Hive blockchain as it goes past. And it means that Hive.blog, which is one site, or Leofinance.io, or PeakD.com, or there's, I can give you 25 different front ends. They're just skins for the same data that is on Hive. And that's, this is such an, this is such a revolutionary theory. It means that your data is not on PeakD or Hive.blog or Leofinance.io. It's on all of them and none of them. And if I did something that upset the owners of Leofinance.io, they could ban my Hive user from their site. I wouldn't care because my data is still on Hive and I'll just use Peak D. It, it's the websites actually then just become skins to the backend data. Yeah. And that's an area we've never gone into. What is the Lightning Network itself then? What okay. is this thing? Lightning is, re is a really different beast. At first, I was horribly dismissive of it. And then I've gone through to a high level of understanding of it. And now I'm less dismissive of it, but it's still got a problem. It's got some problems. It has nothing to do with blockchain. 
it, it itself, the Lightning Network as a whole, is just a collection of people who have agreed to open, in the Lightning word, channels. And this is what James is struggling with right now, is that you've got to have these channels because nothing moves on the Lightning Network except by bouncing from person to person until it finds its destination. So it's, it's this interwoven web. There is no, uh, unlike Hive, where there is a set of computers that all agree on the same transactions, or Bitcoin, which has got that same list, which is currently 460 gigabytes and growing. Lightning doesn't have any of that. All the information flows in my, connect, my node's connection to the next node, which might be connected to another one, which might eventually wind up connected to the podcast index node. So when you want to send a payment, your node goes, okay, which channels do I have? And it tries to find a route. Yeah. Isn't that the same as DNS though? It's very similar to the way that traffic is routed through the internet. It's an, it's a, it's an allegory, but the problems that I have with lightning are that it involves you tying up quite a lot of capital. So I've got, real capital now at the moment i can take my bitcoin and i can put them on crypto.com and earn four and a half percent and that's better than any bank will give me or i have to take some of that bitcoin put it on my lightning node and open a channel and you know the fees are nothing like four and a half percent per annum or six percent or any of the other returns of things you can do with your bitcoin so that's so it is run by a whole load of mostly enthusiasts but, and this is where it gets, I think, problematic. When you get a company like Strike in America. I was going to ask, yeah, go on. Which we can't use because we're second-class world citizens. Yeah. Well, I'd say they're second-class, but we're the rest of the world, yeah. We're the rest of the world. We can't use Strike. Only El Salvadorians and Americans, except those living in Hawaii and New York is a funny case. Um, they run the what what lightning runs the risk of and i think the biggest risk to lightning is that it gets semi-centralized like visa could show up tomorrow with 50 million dollars open 500 nodes per a million dollars on 500 nodes and is that how much is that 500 million no um whatever <laughs> 50 they could open up a load of big nodes, set the routing fees to zero, and suddenly the whole network would connect to them because it just would make sense because the network would want to find these low fee systems. And you'd turn around one day and find that most of the payments are flowing through Visa's computers or Strike, or, and that's a centralization risk that I don't like. I just, I don't like it. If I go really down into the weeds, one story is that Hive did not used to be called Hive. It used to be called Steam. It was it was created okay. by it was created by a few guys, Dan Larimer, and a few other names that you don't need to know. And it was created by, but it, there was a corporate entity called Steamit that created the Steam blockchain and the Steam social network built on it. They created that, and it bumbled along and eventually early last year just as the pandemic got started a guy called justin sun who comes from this thing called tron who's allegedly a billionaire he came along and bought from steam he bought the company steamit and steamit owned a big chunk of what was called steam this is the cryptocurrency steam and steam gives you voting power Hive gives you voting power it gets you control with your vote who is the most important witnesses and that controls what software they run. 
So this guy came along and bought it. And we thought, oh, good, that he might be good for us. But he just basically took over. And he bought this steak, this cheap. And what happened was, in the end, it turned into a war over, over control. He got, the, he, got, he got exchanges to vote, which they shouldn't have been doing. And they had to power up and they, they locked up their users. It was a huge thing for us. And eventually we did what was called, what was, what is called forking. We yep. took all of the data, all of the software, and we forked Justin Sun. Now, one of the guys behind three speak, his stake in Steam was stolen. Literally, he had $3 million worth of Steam. It was gone the next morning because Justin Sun changed the software. And when we created Hive, instead of giving Justin Sun's his Hive, because we all got, I, I had, 30,000 Steam, I got 30,000 Hive, and Hive has become more valuable than Steam now. With Justin Sun's bit, the bit that he bought, we just we, we put it into the fund that is currently paying me $10 an hour. <laughs> we forked it, and we created Hive without him. And that's very controversial, but it's a defense mechanism, and it's a defense mechanism against centralization. <laughs> and we were vulnerable because Steam had this stake, Steemit company in in Texas had this twenty five or thirty percent stake that was bought cheaply. Lightning, I think, has a vulnerability based on somebody with a lot of money and half a billion dollars is now not a lot of money. Google, Visa, all of these companies could deploy half a billion dollars if they wanted to out of cash reserves. That's the scary part. If you try and buy Hive with half a billion dollars, it will make me and everyone else on Hive immeasurably rich and you won't achieve your goal because we've put in place 30-day lockouts. And mm -hmm. if we see someone coming trying to buy the whole system, firstly, the price will rock it, we'll pocket the money, and then we'll fork you out. So fork off. <laughs> it's, it, so it's okay. So I love this. No, sorry, I'm, I'm geeking out on this. Sorry. So my view is this. So... For me, in, in plain words, Bitcoin is like storing gold, right? For, for me, it's just the ability to move a yeah. lot of currency. Very to... good gold. It's better than gold. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, you know, if I want to move my gold bullion out of America, I have to get a lot of Fed uh, and a lot of planes, a lot of people, a lot of security. Yeah. Whereas I can switch it into Bitcoin to just move it anywhere. With Ethereum, it's like a, a competitor to Bitcoin. And it came, but to your point on Adam's podcast, there's one man who could be basically targeted by the feds and the whole thing could fall out. And the Ethereum Foundation, again, Ethereum is vulnerable because the Ethereum Foundation holds a vast amount of Ethereum. And like we were vulnerable in Hive when Steam was Steamit was bought and this 20% stake was bought by this Chinese guy who then started censoring people. I, I don't know about Ethereum. I have Ethereum, but only by accident. Long story on it. Yeah. But I don't like you. I hate using the system itself because every time I try and do anything, it tells me $200 in gas fees. And I'm like, what? And, but also with the NFT, it felt yeah, yeah. a little bit bubbly and a bit pop. It was the guy who bought the $68 million NFT painting was actually an NFT. It was just like I'm a sure it is 90% money laundering. Yeah. And uh, that, that's what it is. But I'll give you an example of real NFTs. That game I told you about, the card game. Yeah, the skiff, yeah. I, when I got into Hive, my friend is big on Splinterlands and he's been playing that game for ages. He's now making a ton of money and he's paying for us. We're learning to drive yachts together. He's paying for almost all of that yachting course with the money he's made from this game. 
Like, right. It's like, great, nice. well done. And the, the reason it's valuable is these cards are strictly limited. They're limit their true non-fungible yeah. tokens. And that's the, the value is because you can create scarcity in a world of abundance on exactly. the web. Exactly. You cannot copy one of those cards on... on, on yeah. And what happens is to go up in levels, what they do is... So if, there are, uh, if they put 10,000 of one card out at level one, in order to get your card to level two, you take two cards and combine them together and now you have a level two card. But you've destroyed the two level one cards. They're gone forever. And so on the secondary market, if I've got some cards that I got right back at the beginning, they're both in my kids' names. My kids have got three or four hundred dollars worth of cards. Hmm. They've done nothing. They, they literally, I paid ten dollars for the starter packs. I played a few games two years ago, and there's three hundred dollars of cards on both their accounts. Very right. nice. But those are true. I like those because they're. If somebody now buys one of those cards, they can start playing Splinterlands and start earning money with that card. It's an mm -hmm. actual. It's an asset. Yeah. My my father's brain doesn't like hearing about this stuff, and he doesn't. Tell him to go and, uh, tell him to understand swaps and options. Funny fucking money. And he does, and, and he's he's financially very sophisticated. But yeah, it, it, gold. Do you know why gold's valuable? What's the most valuable part of gold? It's mentioned in the Bible. That's that gives it enormous. It's the, the foundation of our civilization, as far as I'm oh, okay. concerned. It's it's gold and silver are both mentioned by name. Yeah, and where's Mergon and frankincense when it's at a hope. But but gold and silver are they're, they're units of currency because of that, yeah. uh, and they have some. They've had all this use, but the use doesn't but, matter to them. It's okay, so here's here's a couple of more questions. The problem we've got, or problem that you've outlined, but but it seems to be going down this road, which is therefore a problem, is that if Twitter's jumping on the Lightning Network and <clears throat> I mean, obviously, the value for value with David doing his lightning and all this stuff, it's going, it seems to be gaining momentum towards mass market adoption. Mm -hmm. uh, but and yet you point out more. the massive, great big, you, you point out the massive, great big gotcha, which is yeah. Visa comes in tomorrow and creates a node and suddenly everything's they'll make in. you They'll make you cows in the air somehow if, if you leave it to these big companies. Now, the lightning network might be able to dodge that and, and it is it is pretty even if visa did sit in the middle and root everything i'm not sure that would be catastrophic i would just be very nervous about it because i'm told by the lightning people that it would be very hard for them to censor individual excuse me censor an individual transaction that's what i would be worried about it's i know that my hive account and the history of my hive account cannot be deleted from hive without an extraordinary programming effort and without the agreement of 60 or 70% of the stake, of the weighted stake of all the people on Hive. That's what it would take to get rid of me from Hive and to delete and to cancel my account. That's why I believe Hive is censorship resistant. Okay. So why is Strike so centralized? What is Strike's role in all of this? Well, because... Okay. In order for Stripe, okay, the way Lightning works at the moment, the, the reason why we can't use the Lightning tipping system on Twitter is that Twitter has to be able to associate your Twitter account with a Lightning node that will receive. And Stripe has got one big giant Lightning node. So what happens when Dave 
from Podcast Index goes and says, tip, oh, sorry, when I go to his page and I say tip me, what happens in the background is one of Strike's lightning nodes generates an invoice. Mm-hmm. And that invoice tells someone else where to route the, how, where the payment is going to end up. But that invoice needs to be linked to that Twitter account. Okay. So I then pay the invoice with my Breeze app on my phone and it winds up in Strike. And only Strike knows that this invoice is linked to this Twitter account. I do that. I actually do the very same thing because I've got a thousand or more three speak podcasts coming to my lightning node. Mm-hmm. And it's only because I know the name of their podcast that I can then say, ah, oh, this one is for, and then it's the same thing that Satoshi stream does. So, oh yeah. This payment is going to this light, this hive user. I'll send them hive. Twitter is at Twitter and strike together. Strike generates the invoice. And it knows that invoice goes to this, this Twitter account. And then we can tell the Twitter user that they've received the money. And then it's sitting, but it's sitting on strikes balance. And you then have to take it off. And in order to take it off, you have to have passed KYC, know your customer. This is the reason Twitter will now let you put a Bitcoin address on your account. And I've put my, I've put a Bitcoin address on my account. That's. Twitter is still, Twitter, I think, are skirting, they're sailing close to the wind. For example, they won't let you put a Monero address because Monero is a type of cryptocurrency that's much better at privacy. I think the financial powers that be would be very, I think they like what Twitter is doing by linking a Twitter account to a Bitcoin address Mm -hmm. because that. That's good for the authorities to track. And Strike does all of the know your customer stuff. So that's good for the authorities. Twitter are playing a very dangerous... Look, I mean, I'll be completely upfront here. And I'm suing... My friend and I are suing Google and Facebook. Initially, we were suing Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Mm -hmm. We took Twitter off because it was just making the lawsuit more complex, more costly, and so on. But Twitter banned advertising just the same, just after Google. And... They banned advertising of cryptocurrencies at exactly the same moment that Jack Dorsey was tweeting, oh, look, you can now buy Bitcoin with your cash app, which he owns. Oh, sorry, Square. Is it Square? or yeah, Square, he owns. he owns both, actually. He owns, he owns both. Squash and, and Square, yeah. And so I think that what's happening, I think what's, what's going on inside Twitter is that, is a, and Messina talked about this a little bit, there's a thing, thing called Blue Sky. I yeah, think... Uh, yeah. I think Jack Dorsey is leading or trying to lead some crypto revolution. And I think the whole of Twitter is resisting it. <laughs> and I, I think it's a pet project of Jack Dorsey's. And I don't think, I don't think the, 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 the same advertising based revenue heads at Twitter think that it's going to go anywhere. They're humoring the boss. Yeah, and he's got enough money to be humored on. Yeah. It's in, I, I, I think the whole thing, I, I love this stuff because this is, I think Chris said it as well, you know, it, it got boring. The internet had got boring. It got very and, boring. <laughs> and, and I only got into podcasting a couple of years back, about five, six years ago again. And it, it, there was nothing really, but I was on my learning curve. So that was fine. And now with Dave and Adam, it's getting interesting. Now with the me trying to understand, because I'm, I'm slow behind the curve, but understanding all this crypto stuff. But 
I say I'm slow behind the curve, but I'm ahead of 99% of the planet. So it's fine. I'm okay in that space. We're all very early on this. We're still very early on this. But the use of it. But I go back to my old boss, Mark Andreessen, who said that his biggest mistake when he created the browser was not creating a micropayment system. There was no tech to do it. I don't think there was. No, I know. But then again, he he had the brain size of a planet. He could have done it. Maybe he could have done it. I don't know. But again, it comes back to Tim Berners-Lee's biggest mistake was adding the HTTP. He said, I don't know why I did that with the colon dash. He said the colon slash slash was irrelevant. You didn't need that, he said. And then the the, the other one he said was uh, he wished he'd made it secure from day one. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, But again, funnily enough, Tim Berners-Lee came to, when I was doing my PhD, I did my PhD from from the the, the 91 to 94. No, that was my under, whatever. By 97, I finished my PhD. Hmm. So it's 94 to 97. Tim Berners-Lee came to Leeds and I went to a talk that he gave in the earliest, because I was, I had soup, I had Janet actually terminated my office in the physics department. You know yeah, what no. Janet is and super yeah. Janet. And yeah. I was able to download, I remember the day that we've discovered that you could down, there were some audio files on a machine in Imperial College in London and I could download them faster than real time. That was actually a revelation. It was like, oh my God, I've got enough bandwidth that I can pull down a four-minute song in 10 seconds. Oh, wow. (laughs) This could be useful. (laughs) So my story was I was running Netscape Europe's marketing, and um, I just left Microsoft. And Tim Berners-Lee was in our offices, and I didn't know who the friggin' hell he was or the importance of him. So I'm just having a chat. So, Tim, hi, how are you? Sir Tim now. No, well, he wasn't, right? (laughs) So he was just an English bloke. He was sat in our offices, and I'm like, yeah. So I've come out of this megalith called Microsoft to this little baby company called Netscape. I didn't know how big the web was going to be, nor did I know how big Nobody knew. Right, how big the browser's going to be. At the time, I was showing dolphins on a URL to corporate companies, and that was this uh, this internet thing will be big. Here's a dolphin, look at it. And <laughs> blink text, blink text. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, and then they'd go, yeah, let's just call up Excel and do some proper work. Go away, child, right? And that was fundamentally how it felt most of the time. And so Tim Berners-Lee turns up, or, and we're having lunch together, and I'm chatting away to him. So what do you think about this thing in a way? No idea. <laughs> And I wish now I could have that chat again, but obviously I couldn't. So in many ways, Brian, I'm saying I'm having this chat with you now because in 10 years' time when I'm an old codger, <laughs> I'm going to go, I knew Brian of London when he invented Podpink. Uh, so there no. you go. I'm not sure that those central... I don't want... You see, this is the other thing is that I'm doing the Hive to Lightning Bridge. One of the key reasons why I actually need some money is because I need some real developers to take everything I've got that's running this behind that me here, yep. that vertical T, that's a P51 <laughs> laptop, that's running the Hive Lightning Bridge. The umbral is in a cupboard in the hallway. I don't want this in my house and I don't want to be the only one. I want to put the software on the internet and say anybody can run this bridge mm-hmm. and Hive will decide who routes each payment as and when it's needed. That's what I want to build. But that's a level of complexity. I'm getting... 50 invoices a day right now it's not it doesn't need it doesn't need to go outside of here I'm not, there's mm-hmm. no money in it but I what I don't want to be fame I don't want to be famous in the way that a Tim Berners-Lee is or and the I tell you this is another you could be as famous as I, yeah, mean, I know Chris Messina be, is famous for inventing a hashtag meme yeah, idea right that's right I, I'm fine with that but 
Satoshi Nakamoto, the reason Bitcoin is security is based on the fact that we don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is or where he is, or if he's alive, or if he's one person, we don't know. Steam had a centralized problem because it had a company in Texas called Steamit, which Justin Sun went and bought. Hive doesn't have that problem because nobody owns it, that the largest holder is 3%. So we, there's no one you can go to and say, shut this down. Because I know guys in Australia running the computers. I know guys all across Europe. And the more and the people who run it, the safer it becomes. Correct. Now, it doesn't yeah. have to be like, it's not, it's still a monster to run. It's, it's much more involved than running a Bitcoin node. But it's less, but we, we don't need tens of thousands of people running the Hive blockchain. But we've got 200 and that's plenty for this sort of, <laughs> it's a different, a lot of people, this is the other thing that I don't think, there's a heck of a lot of theory has gone into the background of this. Attack vectors and game theory and, and, and some of it's pretty clever. I, I, I like, I like acknowledging what I don't know. And I don't know the, the ins and outs. I tried to read one of the books that Max uh, Hildebrand, whatever, said about the, the sort of the security theory of Bitcoin. Blimey. It was, it's hardcore stuff. And I'm no, I'm no intellectual lightweight, but there are some mm. areas that I just, Power to go and yeah, yeah. become expert. In. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna love you fun. and leave you. This I know. Thank you so much. A A. First of all, great to meet you. I've been looking forward to this. And uh, if you find somewhere to put all this last bit out, there's yeah. nothing I've said that I can't put public. So good. <laughs>